This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy International Day of Happiness. We're celebrating it. Internationally, everyone happy today. Turn that frown upside down. Terry. What? (laughs) It's International Day of Happiness. Oh. So I want to know what you're going to do to celebrate today. Um, I'm going to drive drive home. Yeah. Um, Make some lunch. Probably taco salad. Yep. As I have every day. And then I will uh, fold some clothes. Do some laundry. Okay, then what? This is the um, this, this is the International Day of Happiness. Yeah. Um, so far, I haven't. I don't know that I've hit a happy nerve yet. I'll gather my children around. We'll probably go to the gym. Okay. Isn't there some measure of contentment from doing these everyday tasks? Yeah. Absolutely. Just thought there'd be something different. Might watch my favorite new show. Balloons? Are you going to get balloons? No. <gasps> I know something Party different what? I'm going to do today. What? Exercise. Excellent. That'll make you happy. I'm going to eat... Oh, a guy's coming to aerate my lawn. Whoa. I think your definition of happy and mine is different. Oh, okay, sir. We have different definitions. Just thinking about what's happening today. Okay. <laughs> it is. So all y'all figure out a way to celebrate happy International Happiness Day. And you got to just not be happy because that could you could do any day. You have to be happy internationally. Mm. How do you do that? Well, I think if you're going to have a taco salad. Okay. Or you book a plane ticket and you go to some other country, but by the time you get there, it's no longer International Happy Day. Yeah. Then it's probably some other day. Boy. Hey, uh, it's also Won't You Be My Neighbor Day. We're celebrating Fred Rogers today. Mr. Rogers raised many a child. With Mr. McFeely, that funny, crazy guy, the, cr- the crazy delivery man. He still is. Is he still around? Well, no. Not him, but... Did you know when you show. were younger... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still or, got him there. Or did, it, did you not find out until you were older that he was doing the voices of all those puppets? I did not know that In that alternate older. universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did notice that a lot of the puppets had the same, like, tenor in their tone or their voice. Yeah, there was one that freaked me out. Oh, yeah. Uh, the one that lived in the... Was it the king? No, she lived in the museum. The merry-go-round museum? Yeah, the merry-go-round museum. That, what was her name? Lady... No, uh, lady, that she was the one that was the human. Was it Everly? I forget her name. Oh, that lady scared me. Yeah. She's on the uh, Daniel Tiger cartoon they made out of all those characters. Oh, really? Yeah, she looks a lot more well, the, pleasingly, pleasing to the eye, because that, okay. that puppet was yeah. scary. Yeah. You know, it's not easy making every puppet look pleasant. I mean, if you're a puppeteer, you should know that. So uh, today we're going to be talking about our brains, and there's some powerful new science coming out that's showing us maybe we're not using our brain to its fullest capacity. Maybe we could get more out of our brain. Yes. What's her name? Lady. Uh, Ooh, Lady Elaine? No, but no. I thought Lady Elaine was the. Uh, that is freaky. Yeah, that yeah. she scared me. Everyone knows who it's we're talking about. It's too much blush. If she would have yeah. toned down the blush a bit. Well, I think she – it probably wasn't even blush. She probably was just flushed because she had to try to get off that Ferris wheel m- museum, mm. which isn't easy. 
it's always moving. You know, how do you get off of that? Anybody where the any character where the eyes don't move, that's scary. Yeah. Well, you're not supposed to trust that. It's like she had two glass eyes. We've we've uh, had guests on the show. Lady Elaine Fairchild. Lady Elaine Fairchild. She ran the Merry-Go-Round Museum. Oh. Muse, I, actually, they call it the Museum Go-Round. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she was just kind of scary. And she may have been nice, but I just remember tariff being terrified. They called her a cranky schemer. That was it. Hey, who she, doesn't know a cranky schemer? Any museum curator for a museum where there shouldn't be a museum... Like a museum of merry-go-rounds, mm-hmm. those are the scariest ones. Like any horror like movie yeah. where a, a, the main character shows up at some weird museum and they're the only patron there, mm-hmm. and then they turn, they exit the museum and turn around and it's just gone. Ooh, see, this is I think exciting. I've cracked, it. I've cracked it. You've cracked. You've cracked something. It's um, <laughs> it, and I I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about it, but BYU Radio has a show. Called the it, Matt Townsend Show? In the making. Oh. That may involve museums. But so, not the scary ones. Museums After Dark? Is that what it's called? No, or? no, no. It's going to be really good. So, anyway, be looking for that. I'm sure we'll have them on the show. We'll do a little uh, yeah, preview sure. as soon as the show's ready. Um, all that fun today. Celebrating Mr. Rogers' International Happiness Day. Plus, we'll talk about a galloping moose. Have you ever been just snowboarding and then all of a sudden a moose passes you? I was camping and in, a moose just sort of walked through camp. Yeah. That was fun. I went snowboarding once and couldn't move for the next two days. Yeah, so it's like it's it's kind of the same thing. This moose, it's a great video. The moose is galloping and it's I mean, those things can haul. Yeah. And this moose passed a snowboarder. Like they can in go full up, sprint. They can go up to thirty five miles per hour. Can they really? Mm-hmm. But how do they park? That's what I always worry about. Mm. They have a park assist feature. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. It's really the safest way to go. I, I think it's called a path. Mm. <laughs> the, old, the old park assist feature. So we'll talk about a galloping moose surprising a snowboarder in Colorado. Uh, all that fun. Plus, of course, uh, some new discoveries of the brain. we got to pick up our game. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Judge Neil Gorsuch arrives on Capitol Hill today to begin his confirmation hearing for a seat on the Supreme Court. He will give President Trump his first chance to make a lasting impression on the federal judiciary and Republicans a fresh test to work their now, uh, their will now that they control all of Washington's levers of power. Gorsuch, a federal appeals court judge from Colorado, promoted by conservative legal activists because of his sterling credentials, a decade of right of center rulings, and his allegiance to the same brand of constitutional interpretation employed by late justice that he would be replacing Antonin Scalia. Opening statements from the senators on the committee and Gorsuch will be today. Questions actually to the judge will be held tomorrow. So today will be a lot of bloviating. Tomorrow will be some questions. Ah, What a great word. Bloviating. I love bloviating. It works when you watch con- you know, Congress start talking. It's just yeah. hot air. Also, Homeland Security. They uh, asked for uh, prototype proposals for the planned U.S.-Mexico border wall. Revealing really? further details on what the Trump administration envisions. The contract notice uh, describes a, quote, physically imposing wall that will be made out of reinforced concrete and stand 30 feet tall. So concrete, 30 feet tall. One document emphasizes the wall should, quote, look good from the north side while being difficult to climb or cut through. The Associated Press reports the north side of the wall, the U.S. facing, shall be aesthetically pleasing in color, 
anti-climb texture, etc., to be consistent with general surrounding environment. What what's an anti-climb texture? Not <laughs> sure. I guess Crisco. Could be. You just put some grease on it. Maybe spiky, but maybe you could grab onto the spikes. I don't know. Mm. It all depends, but that's how the uh, how it's worded. Right. House Speaker Paul Ryan said Sunday that he will seek to change the Republican health care plan in order to help older Americans who might face higher costs. We believe we should have even more assistance, and that's one of the things we're looking at for the persons in their 50s to 60s because they're ex- they experience higher health care costs, Ryan said on Fox News, adding the goal is to dramatically lower the price of the plan for the 50- and 60-year-olds. But even that, we think, will uh, should be offering more assistance than what the bill currently does. The full House is expected to vote Thursday on legislation. So Ryan wants to change the plan from what it's currently at to adjust for 50 to 60-year-olds, make it it easier, but they're going to vote Thursday. Oh, sure. So who's going to read it? Well, no one's reading it. Remember, these, this is the health care bill. We don't read this bill. You, you pass it, then you read it. Yeah. So That's how we just con- do it. We've done it that way for there. years. Again, moving a little fast here. And finally, yes. it's the happiest international happy day or yeah. happiest. Whatever. The latest World Happiness Report shows that Norway has jumped from number four to number one in the world as the happiest country on earth. No way. No, Norway. No way. Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland... And Finland make up the rest of the top five. Wow, that it seems to be geographically yeah. they've kind of cornered the happiness There's an market. Enclave of happiness. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Happening. Thank you. Despite a rise in income in the U.S. over the past ten years, happiness has declined, leaving Americans in 14th place. The chief executive officer of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen says, "Oh, hold it. Yeah, huh? The Happiness Research Institute is in Copenhagen. Yeah." With the same area. That's now number one in the world. Oh, how convenient. Absolutely. Conspiracy. A happiness conspiracy. What works in the Nordic countries is a sense of community and understanding in the common good. There you go. Yeah, and they seem to be completely out of the rest of the world discussions. Or they're there, but they're not in the forefront. Yeah, do you think Frozen has anything to do with this? <laughs> the the movie Frozen? Yes. Hmm. What, what's your thinking? Help me, help me go down that rabbit hole with you. That movie makes a lot of people happy, and it's. Uh, do you think being frozen helps you? You know, weather the tough times. Um, Is that what you're saying? If I, you live in Southern California, yes. Yeah. <sighs> Which is where Disney. Is ah, it's all a fix. Good point. So Disney's helping Southern Cal be happy. Yes, but not as much as the Happiness Institute in Copenhagen is helping the that area, that geographic area, be happy. Right. Disney needs. Well, to that's their kind game of where up. the where Frozen takes place is in that area. Yeah. yeah. So that's. I mean, that's. So you have a corporate. You have a, a nation state, uh-huh. and they're just working and you, together. And you have a to, pseudo organization researching happiness. Right. See? Conspiracy. It's conspiracy. I'll guarantee you the Russians are involved somehow. And Russia's in there. They're fixing it somehow. Oh, yeah. And, and Breitbart. Right. Everybody's in Disney's pocket. You're back to Disney. Well, yeah. they're the money. Yes. They're the money and the marketing, yeah. really. Yeah. The rest of it's just kind of make it look good. Yeah. But it's all money.
Have you guys read um, – oh, there's a great book out. Not to change the subject, but I'm changing the subject. Go on ahead. There's um, another one of those statements. Not to do this, <laughs> but I'm going to do exactly this. There's a new book out that uh, is the number sexist. one bestseller book on Amazon. Do you know what, what it's it? called? Number one bestseller. Is it by that little girl? Mm-mm. If you're happy and you know it? It's No, it's Reasons to Vote for Democrats. A comprehensive guide. Number one bestseller. It's a book put out by um, Michael J. Knowles. 266 pages, all blank. They're all blank. Really? It's the number one bestseller on Amazon. Hmm. So it's essentially a journal. It's, it's essentially a journal. But the guy says it's the most – you can go cover to cover in about 15 to 20 seconds. It's an easy read. The conservative journalist told Fox and Friends – by the way, Fox and Friends, of course, the only place advertising it. It took a very long time to research this book, he said. When I observed their record and reasons to vote for Democrats, uh, I realized that it was probably best to just leave all the pages blank. But it's, 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 it's selling off the shelf. The Democrats uh, booed God. That's not good. This was all at the Democratic National Convention, he said. They um, – so they I decided booed, they booed yeah. God. He said when I started wow. researching the book and going through w- this exhaustive study process about why people should vote for the Democrats, he, he said I turned to the DNC National Convention and it turned out that they were deciding whether or not to include God in their party platform, and the Democrats booed God. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, the audience is booing them booing, booing God. God. It's a double yeah. boo, which is really a positive, too, I guess. Anyway, um, so I decided <laughs> probably if I'm going to make a good case to vote for Democrats, let's just leave that chapter blank. So he went through. Available. The book is available for $8.03. It's a good buy. That's a great buy with all that research involved. and it's What de- does the cover look like? It's, uh, it looks just like um, it's got a little Democrat, a little horse on it, or I mean a donkey. The Democratic donkey, and it's got a flag. It's a very basic cover. And then nothing inside. But the, the funny thing is, is some, somehow it's reaching the level of being a bestseller, which is not easy to do. So, wow. As a guy that's written a book, it's not easy to make a bestseller. That's frustrating when, you, when people that put out actual content yeah. can't get any views on YouTube or can't get anybody to buy their product. But uh, a guy that basically sells a blank inside book <laughs> kills it. Yeah, I mean, just think it's about like those that. blank inside greeting card people. Yeah, they blank get paid. Inside. It's three or four dollars a card, and you got to no do all work. the work. Yeah, I mean that's a racket. If I'm going to pay you, do the work. Don't. Yeah, if I'm buying a card from you, Hallmark, and there's nothing inside, and I got to do the work. You ought to know exactly what it is I want to say. Right. And you ought to know how to say it better than me. I mean, you're the people that, you know, you've been doing this for years. If I'm doing the work, you should be paying me. That's a great point. See, Jeff, these are the, these are the points a lot of people don't think about. That's why, that's why we do the show. We want to help you through life. Don't buy a blank inside card. Just get the card with something written. And make sure you choose the right writing because you don't want to give a funeral card to somebody that's you know celebrating a wedding and for heaven's sakes you don't want to write your own thoughts well they'll die eventually yeah 
Oh, this world we live in, where you can have an empty book be a number one bestseller on Amazon. Crazy. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking about some uh, powerful new uh, science of the brain and peak performance. Stick with us. Leadership has been uh, long treated as an art, a fuzzy philosophy based more on fads than on facts. That accounts for endless stream of game-changing management books that seem to come and go almost as rapidly as Paris fashions. It also explains why today's leadership guru is often more today's tomorrow's forgettable footnote. But effective leadership isn't an art, it's a science. Frederic Fabritius, neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group, is joining us this morning to discuss her ideas of in her book, uh, The Leading Brain, which will help us learn how to become better leaders and reach our full potential. Frederic, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you having me on the show. You bet. This is, um, to me, I love uh, studying leadership or an influence and how to influence people. But you're telling us science now and neuroscience, I guess, specifically is helping us understand uh, some traits that make people peak performers that leaders need to know about. Yes. And that's so exciting because we now have tools that are evidence-based. You know, it's not that I make up those ideas and say, I think it's a good idea you do this or that. We can actually measure brain activity and see what people can do to perform better. What, uh, what are, um, give us an example of what neuroscience is finding out about the brain that helps us target and, and, and really lead others better. Yes. If you look at the brain while people are performing at their best, you have to look at a brain region that is called the prefrontal cortex. That's what we use for rational thinking and decision-making and logical thinking. And you need three substances to perform at your best. And I call this the DNA of peak performance. And you need all of these three substances in order to perform, to give your prefrontal cortex a boost. And they are called dopamine, noradrenaline, and acetylcholine. Um, I can, if you are interested, I can tell you about each of these substances and how they make us perform better. So, so these are actual um, brain chemicals. Dopamine, we, we yes. kind of know know about. Was it was another one adrenaline? Noradrenaline. Noradrenaline, which is a positive stress hormone. Okay. So and okay, um, yes. Yeah. So get get into those three chemicals. Talk as, talk to us about the the impact that just chemistry has on the brain there. Yes, if you look at dopamine, dopamine is released when we're having fun. It's part of the reward circuit in the brain. So when people are having fun at work, they perform better. And I'm not talking about the after work party. I'm really like if you as a radio host enjoy being a radio host, then you will do a better job because you will have the dopamine flow in your brain, which enhances brain performance by helping you to um, process information more quickly. It makes your um, prefrontal cortex more efficient. So So true. People should be having fun. Yeah. And then you have the noradrenaline, which is um, a little bit of healthy stress. So you need a challenge. Imagine you were to interview the same person every day. You would get bored Mm -hmm. unless it's a very interesting person. But, you know, after a while, you will have known all about that person. You need new challenges, new tasks, 
you always need to higher your stakes. So you need to be slightly over-challenged in order to perform well. And that's where the noradrenaline comes in. When we're a little bit nervous and a little bit afraid to fail, and when we have um, a big, bit of a challenge, not too much, then noradrenaline is released, and that also boosts our brain performance. Oh, that's interesting. So um, as a leader, we you know, there may have been a theory that you got to make your office fun. And I remember back in the dot-com world, we wanted it fun, so everyone had, you know, we had foosball tables and ping-pong tables, and it was a really laid-back environment. But you're saying you need to have more than just fun to release dopamine you also need to be slightly challenged. If you're too challenged, that probably just creates, you know, stress cortisol, I'm assuming. Yes. But, but having the yes. proper balance of cha- of challenge makes noradrenaline. Yes, and I call it to be slightly over-challenged. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. You need to be a little bit, it needs to be the step of next development. It's, you don't, you step a little bit out of your comfort zone, and that's exactly where you need to be to learn and to grow as a person. That's great. And what was the third one? It's not about uncontrollable stress. You know, it's not about having a slightly unfriendly boss. It's about having tasks that are challenging. Right. Um, And the third one is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a substance that is released when we have focused attention, when we are focused. And this is something that I see really deteriorating in many organizations because people are constantly checking emails and multitasking. And if you think of a concert piano player, a performing artist on stage, he's not going to check his emails while doing that. You can't get into the zone or flow or your sweet spot if you're distracted. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, so, so we, we may be creating unintentionally cultures and environments um, that that chemically are upsetting us. Absolutely. And many people are in a threat state. Um, a threat state is a part of constant stress in the brain. And we can see that it makes your prefrontal course work less efficient when we're in a stress state. And I'm not talking about being challenged. I really talk about, you know, being overwhelmed with work and distractions and unfriendly people, our prefrontal cortex shuts down and we can't focus fully anymore. Interesting. And then um, it's funny, it must be horrible because we don't even know why we're shutting down. And it, I mean, it's but we just feel burdened because it's not fun or we're not being stretched enough um, or we're just we're we have too many interruptions. And yet our body is naturally just responding to that. And I, I guess the traditional philosophy would be, well, then you just need to, you know, hunker down and and suck it up and just focus more. But it's not about more focus, is it? No, and it's not going to help. What what we can see with these, you know, everybody needs these three substances to perform well, but the conditions under which you reach your peak performance can be very different. Let's say, I I don't know you very well. I mean, first time we speak, but imagine you were one of these people that, run a marathon at the weekend and you go bungee jumping on Monday and on Tuesday you fly to Japan and on Thursday you're back. And, you know, if you're one of these people and they're called sensation seekers because they often have a mutation in the dopamine system that makes them crave exciting things from the environment. If you're one of these people that are sensation and thrill seekers, 
you need a lot of pressure at your work to perform well. You, you probably prior to an interview, you wouldn't read any information about that person so that you're a little bit stressed about not hmm. asking the right questions. You know, whereas a person who has less of that active dopamine system and who is more thriving on routines and regularity and the comfort of um, knowing what's going on. And these people have a different structure in the dopamine system. They will want to prepare as meticulously as, as possible. And you need to give people the possibility to create the work environment they need to perform. So you could be an equally good radio host by being a sensation seeker or by being a person who needs more structure. But hmm. you need a work environment that allows you to choose your settings. Do, now, you call these um, – uh, are these are neural signatures. Like we all have our own approach chemically for what drives us, what makes us a peak performer. And um, h- how do I know what mine is? How do I know my balance? Mm-hmm. Well, there are tests that you can take. For example, the um, neurocolor test by Helen Fisher. And it will tell you if you're a person with a more active dopamine system or a more active serotonin system, which is about um, more equilibrated work and more structure and routine. Um, this is something that you will also find out as soon as I tell you about this, you probably instantly realize it, whether you're more of a sensation seeker or less. Mm. And that's all you need to know. You need to, I think you feel, um, when an environment, a work environment is either too challenging or not challenging enough. And, and, and is, is that the are, only one? Yeah. Is that the only, uh, chemical we're trying to manage is whether it's I'm a thrill seeker or not no it's not I mean you can I can give you um, a little bit of an overview of that yeah do Um, first of all um, you know there's the dopamine system and we have discussed that already a lot people who have a very active dopamine system that constantly look for new challenges and new novelty they're novelty seekers Um, so that's the dopamine and people defer to that degree also whether they're more risk taking or more safety seeking people with a very active dopamine system they're always looking for risk taking activities they could be gambling or drinking you know I'm saying this without judgment it doesn't have to be but you know the probability is higher that you engage in those activities and then then we have the serotonin and the serotonin is important for mood stability I think People might have heard about antidepressants that regulate the serotonin system because people who are depressed tend to have um, a serotonin system that is not active enough. Mm. And you, you change that by um, reducing the uptake of the serotonin uh, in the brain. So when people have a very active serotonin system, they are probably very stable, very reliable, very loyal. They like structures and routines. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, because in many organizations, there's a lot of emphasis on these thrill seekers. Right. Successful if you're always running and always trying to do the next best thing. This does not correlate with intelligence. We need all of these people. It's not, um, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker and still I, I manage to do things in a, in a very pressure 
pressured work environment. It's about knowing who you are. You don't have to. But when I, when I worked at McKinsey in the past in management consulting and I was surrounded by people who constantly like to travel seven days a week, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah. But this doesn't make me a stupid person. Right, you know? right. What I'm trying to say. So it's all about um, finding the right balance. People with a very high serotonin system, they could, when I ask um, executives, and I work a lot with executives, and I ask them, what kind of jobs would these people be good at? And they say, oh, nursery homes and bureaucratic stuff, and they sit somewhere where they just process boring data, and, you know, maybe Mm. a kindergarten teacher, and they said, no. Nobel Prize winning researchers, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, you know, you need a certain uh, attention for detail and a certain perseverance in order to get some things done that require a larger attention span. And people with a high, um, with a very active serotonin system, they tend to be able to focus on a topic over a very long time and to really get into the details and to really know all the laws and regulations and to pay attention to detail. And that pays off when you write a book, for example. It's not possible to do that without a lot of editing and re-editing. Oh, it's horrible. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need, you need those skills. They're not wasted. And then another substance that is important is estrogen. People with a very active estrogen system in the brain, and it's a neurohormone, um, they tend to be very good at relationships, and they pay attention to other people's feelings, and there's a high empathy in these people, hmm. and also high verbal fluency, so you're able to express yourself very eloquently. And we tend to attribute that to skill. women, right? Yet estrogen, men have estrogen in their system. Exactly. And there are men with a very active estrogen system, and they often are writers, you know, and they have professions where they can excel at these skills. Yeah. It's not limited to women, but traditionally we see estrogen as a female sex hormone when in reality men have it too. Hmm. And then we have testosterone. Funny enough, that's the, you know, the counterpart, and that's about logical, rational thinking. There's a certain tough-mindedness to people with an active testosterone system. There's a certain drive and a certain desire to to have power as well associated. They have a good spatial orientation. So, you know, these four systems, the dopamine, the serotonin, the estrogen, and the testosterone system, we all have these four. You know, there's not a person who doesn't have testosterone. Right, right. But we we are different to the degree to which we express um, those um, substances. And they make up our, what Helen Fisher calls, neural signature. Hmm. And we need to know our neural signature if we want to to know how to move forward. We're speaking with Frederique Fabritius, and she's walking us through um, some information from her book, The Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Uh, We'll take a break, come back, continue discussing this neural signature and how we figure out and understand ourselves, as well as how do we lead others. It's a science-based approach to leadership instead of, you know, just a concept. Now the concepts are being proven out by neuroscience. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Frederique Fabritius. She's the leading neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group and is an executive coach, leadership specialist with extensive expertise working with top executives from multinational corporations like Bayer, Audi, Montblanc, uh, Ernst & Young. I mean, I think she's 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 touching them all. And as a leadership, uh, I, I used to do some leadership consulting, and it's interesting I think what, Frederic, you're bringing us is finally, um, and, and this is happening in, I think, a lot of areas, neuroscience is catching up with all of these these philosophies and assumptions we've made about humans. Exactly. And it's, uh, you know, um, my mother, she said to me when I started out doing this, she said, you know, these are all things that your grandmother probably would have told people to do, you know, huh. work out sleep well, be friendly to your co-workers, increase trust and fairness. But the reason why people now buy in into that stuff is because I can explain why it's good to do so. And somehow that makes a difference. Right. Well, it makes sense, too, because um, because these are chemical issues. You can see why um, a woman having a baby would upset uh, chemistry or potentially upset it, or a, a man suffering from a uh, you know a cancer treatment could totally restart and reshift chemicals in their bodies. So it's almost like we're we're more of a, f- a flowing fluid uh, thing than we are this static human being. If our chemistry oh. changes, we change. That's so true. And also, I'd like to add, it's so important that we understand this body-mind connection. Mm. That might sound esoteric, but it's not. There's, you know, people used to think it's a one-way road. You feel sad, and then you may have a bad, um, sad body posture or a sad face. But it's the other way around as well. It's a two-way road. So if we have um, a good body posture... Or if we put a smile on our face, this will also put us um, into a better mood. Mm, that's right. Because our brain picks up signals from the body. And when your body is relaxed, your mind will relax. And we, we've talked um, about that. Yeah, body posture, uh, Amy Cuddy's work um, yeah. through Harvard. And, 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 but I guess this is, this is something I've always wondered. And, Frederic, here you are to answer it. Um, so, really... My thoughts could generate my chemistry is what you're saying, but simultaneously my chemistry could generate my thoughts. Um, If, for example, if I have a lot of testosterone on board, I guess that's what would make me more consistently tough-minded, power-oriented, driving, driving, driving people. Um, Yes. Now, what would happen if... For some reason, you know, you hit 55 or whatever and your testosterone levels start to drop. Does do people start to wonder if your personality is changing? Is this a midlife Uh, crisis? It's a very good point. Um, It's a very good point. As people get older, testosterone level drops and also dopamine levels go down Mm. and people become less of a sensation seeker and are more um, oriented towards routine. To give you an example, in a nursery home, if you change the lunch schedule and you say, today we serve lunch one hour earlier or later, people will get very upset. Yeah. They get very confused. They will really experience this as a stressful situation. Whereas if you tell a 20-year-old you know, person, you know, um, dinner is one hour later, they're going to say, like, whatever. 
you know. Yeah, now right, right. Now or early, I'm going to survive. People are more, there are two things that happen when we get older. We get more um, adapt to, to routines. We, we are less able to adapt to constantly changing challenges. And we also become less of power seekers due to the drop in testosterone. So we don't care so much anymore about always being, you know, the best. And <laughs> it's, um, it's, it can be a good change. The good thing is that there are things you can do to prevent from that to happen. Okay. Exercise really boosts your dopamine levels, and that will boost your testosterone levels. So those chemical substances, they always interact. They're not active in isolation. How do you so exercise boosts dopamine and testosterone? How would you suggest you boost serotonin? Also, exercise. You know, it has been shown that exercising every day for an hour is just as effective as an antidepressant. Mm, yeah. and, and you know, these antidepressants that have an um, that um, interact with your serotonin system, exercise is just as efficient because what exercise does is boost all of your neurochemicals. Hmm. Do you worry? Um, I, I just, I actually just did a workshop on anxiety and anxiousness. And um, a lot of the people's pushback is they just don't want to start going down the chemical track. And I guess my question is the minute you start injecting or putting some new chemicals in to like maybe, you know, manage the serotonin levels, Oh yeah, it's a system, and all of a sudden it could start impacting every other system. Oh, you're so right. And you know what happens? For example, when people take um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the new um, SSRIs, yeah, yeah. If people take that, it will have an impact on their dopamine system, and it will suppress dopamine. And what happens when dopamine is suppressed? People don't fall in love as easily Mm. anymore. People don't take risks anymore people have less fun people are less curious to explore new things so your mood might be stable okay but it's kind of gray you don't have ups and downs anymore which is a good thing if you plan to kill yourself you know it's right. better to have a to stable have the, mood and right. not have it you know but if people take these medications over a long period without really having serious serious problems it will have a very negative impact on the other chemical systems and they will have less joy in life. Mm. I, I know an artist that uh, ended up taking an SSRI and it amazingly it stopped their depression. They you know they weren't having the depressive thoughts, but they also were no longer driven to create their art. Yes, and dopamine is very much linked to artistic drive. We can't be creative without dopamine, and there's also no drive to be creative. It's, it's like we don't care anymore. Now, when there's a lack of dopamine, it's a little bit of whatever, you know, I could do that or I could not. You lack the drive to be creative. Yeah. Talk about, um, so we we could go figure out what our neural signature is, um, and then, you know, what else I guess is f- fascinating for me, Frederick, is why are we not, um, it seems like doctors should maybe be more on the forefront of this. And when you do come in with, you know, drive issues or other issues, figuring out and managing chemistry better and, and figuring out, yeah, you know what, your testosterone level is really low, your estrogen level is really high, this is going on, this is going on. It seems like it could be a really major tool that would help 
in mental health management and even just life management. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to know who you are. Um, very often I have people coming, you know, executives that say, oh, I'm so stressed. Can you help me with my emotional regulation? You know, do you have techniques so I don't get so angry anymore in stressful situations? The first thing I ask is, you know, why do you want to do that? What's your work environment like? If you have a bad boss and your wife tries to divorce you at home, no wonder you're stressed. You should be you stressed. Know, you should be stressed. So it's not about trying to stay zen and then have a million mindfulness techniques so you stay calm no matter what. First, try to solve the situation. Yeah. And when you know who you are and when you know what you need, then you can adapt your environment to fit your needs. You shouldn't change yourself. You should try to change your environment. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and start leading your environment. I mean, really, one little turn, one little change in your environment, getting maybe you back to your passion might reignite more of that dopamine and all of a sudden you're back on the dopamine train. Absolutely. You're so right. So very often it's, you know, people are in the wrong work environment and you need to control that and, and, and feel. And, and, and also what has been shown is that when people take charge of their life, so when people take an active approach to solving their problems, um, cortisol is reduced and dopamine goes up and uh, people feel less stress. Yeah. So. You know what? That's, I guess that's, that's the key to this. Well, Frederick, we, you know, we appreciate you acting, knowing, learning about our brains, our science, our, our, uh, our chemistry, powerful stuff. The name of the book, the lead, uh, the leading brain, powerful science-based strategies for achieving peak performance. Frederick Fabritius is, uh, is the author of it. Great uh, insight, great work. Folks, you can't get ahead of yourself enough. I mean, to, to now start taking these feelings and driving them down to a chemical level, that's power. Power in your own uh, life. We'll take a break, come back. We'll be discussing, uh, we'll be talking with McKenna Baus, the mind bender. Stick with us. Welcome to her house. Looking about, she is here to break down things you didn't know. Now. McKenna Baus is in the house. McKenna is our mind bender, and today she's going to help us by, uh, bend a little bit of our stress away. Hopefully, that that is the You're goal. You're going to help us de-stress. Yeah, we all need that. I need that. I need it, like right now. Okay, help me. Well, here we go. So a lot of times when you're really stressed, people you know say, "Hey, it's not as bad as you think. It's fine. It's Relax. Fine. You'll be okay." They have you think like, you know, think of the positive side of this. Like, how is this going to be good for you? <laughs> and you know that that works. That's a neat thought for maybe you know thirty seconds. Right, right. And then you're just like, "Crap, what's and going on?" Wondering where you're going to go from there. Yeah. Um. But there's sort of this new approach that uh, was put out in the Harvard Business Review that's saying, you know, when you're stressed, one of the best ways you can get over that stress fast and just move forward is to force yourself to start going through the worst case scenario. Yeah, I've heard of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always call it the so then what? Yeah, because then then you have to deal with, okay, well, well, yeah, well, she'll break up with me. So then what? Yeah, well. Then we'll be, you know, then we'll be divorced. So then what? Well, I guess it'd be horrible. Yeah, and then what would you do? 
Exactly. It forces the hand. It really does. So the, but the science is saying maybe you ought to look at the worst case scenario. Yeah. And so the the reason behind that is, you know, they sort of make the argument that pressure and stress are not the same thing. But pressure turns into stress when you add rumination to oh. it. When you sit there and you think things over mm-hmm. all the time and you t- start to catastrophize. Yeah. And worry and, about it. Exactly. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And the idea is your worst case scenario that you think of right now is probably a whole lot better then your worst case scenario, you're going to be thinking of, you know, down the road, down the road. Right. And right. so what you do is when you're f- starting to feel that pressure and you can feel that, you know, stress is coming on and it's building a little much, you pause, you say, OK, you know, if I bomb this presentation, how bad is it really going to be? Right. And, you know, you're like, well, my boss will be really disappointed. I might not get that raise. That'd be, you know, that really stink, but I'm pretty much at the same place I am right now. Yeah. And so at that point, you're like, okay, and it's a lot easier to deal with. And it stops you from ruminating because you've already set that sort of end point of where that worst case is going to be. And that pressure doesn't turn into stress. Right. But if you hold on to it and you keep thinking fester, about it, fester. faster, faster, all of a sudden that worst case scenario turns into, I lose my job and I'm living on the street and I can't feed my kids and you're a mess. Well, our last guest even said the mere fact that you act on it and start acting on it immediately creates a dopamine and a serotonin push. Yeah. So you start medicating by by acting on it. So if if you're going to have negative thoughts, maybe the way you act on it is you... You just figure out what's the worst case scenario, really. You control it. And what would I do? Yeah, you write the narrative. Yeah. And you do it while you're still, you know, in control of your line of thought. Because once you get to that point of stress where things are really bad, it's a lot harder to regain control of your thinking and to get rational. That ruminating, because ruminating, I'm telling you, that tips over so many people. Yeah, it's the worst. Well, especially you have a lot of time to think. And some people are um, what we call higher sensitive. They're people that just naturally are going to take in more of the stress. Mm-hmm. And, and if they can't get it out of them, yeah. then where is it going to go but just keep circulating in their head? Yeah. I feel like this is sort of the equivalent of, you know, when you have ate some really bad food mm-hmm. and you start feeling sick and you don't want to be sick, but sometimes it's a little better to just get it out yeah. of your system. Oh, no. How many times have I said, I just got to throw this up? Yeah. I just got to throw it up. You, you just got to be done. Yeah. And so it's sort of like doing I'm, that I'm going to keep stress. it down. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to keep it down another couple hours. It's going to be worse. Yeah. And so this, it's just get it out of your system. And that's a pretty graphic example. But but I think it works. It's true. <laughs> it's totally true. So let's take it to Jeff. Jeff, can you see a day that you would just, instead of you know being optimistic, it might be better for you to just go ask, go look at the worst case scenario? See, I feel like that's more of my wife's job, and I I tend to be a little more optimistic. I wouldn't even say optimistic. I I think it's just a matter of wanting to put off anything that's negative. Yeah, or you, know, you want to un- go unpleasant. to that happy place. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe I don't need to because she does that, and we're a good balance. But does does she ruminate? So will she just keep spinning the negative story in her head? Um, yeah, but again, I wouldn't say she's so negative as she is realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. See, I don't have to do it because so, we balance so what each you do, other out. But what you do next time she brings up the issue like, so what if this and this happens? Then I always, as a, when I'm coaching people, I'm already like, so what if it does? Let's just go there and solve it. So tell me what you'd do. And then they start wrapping their head around it. 
And all of a sudden they realize, well, I'd get over it, I guess. I mean, I'd have to fix it. But every once in a while, we just are resolved to the fact that we we have trials. Yeah. We know that. It happens to everybody. And uh, whatever this... Whatever this example is you're talking about, this is our next one, yeah. and we just get through it. Yeah, yeah. By the way, you got through it before. You'll get through it again. Yeah. Worst case scenario, McKenna, you did it. Yeah. You just you just bent our brains out of shape. That's what Sometimes I Sometimes do. you don't need to avoid it. Be positive. Just go to the worst case scenario and think your way through it. What exactly. would I do? McKenna Bouse, Bouse in the house, the mind bender. Thanks, McKenna. You can catch McKenna on all of our social media as well. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's the House of Bows. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy day for you, hopefully. Hopefully you're making it a great one. Today, by the way, Common Courtesy Day. We will just show common courtesy. Thank you for doing me some common courtesy by turning off your Townton Abbey. No, I haven't turned it off. Oh. I'm, it's, it's rolling right here. So there was no common courtesy. No. But thank you for thanking me, which is a common courtesy, for almost turning off my Townton Abbey. By the <sighs> way, Townton Abbey update up to 68,000 um, citizens in my little fiefdom. Neat thing about Townsend Abbey is uh, we just put in a bus system because I had a lot of complaints about traffic flow. And I didn't want to make six-lane roads because that just costs a fortune. Any more word from B? B. Uh-oh. Oh, no, B. You've already forgotten her. Oh, yeah, B. I didn't forget her. She, You know, she moved out. B, B was the um, she was she was one of the naysayers of the Townsend Abbey folk. It's interesting that she moved out, considering she sings about not being able to escape. Yeah, it's weird. It was weird. She just once we got that bus system working, she was one of the first people we put on the bus. Hmm. I mean, that got on the bus, and now she's gone. Oh, right out of town. Yeah, first bus out of town. Yep, took nice. her right to the next town. Mm, I'm going to miss old B. Not that she was old. No age discrimination there. Hey, got a great show for you today. Um, we're going to have a little update on Trumpdom. Um, Trump's in a little bit of, I don't know if trouble, but, uh, you know. Can you be in trouble if you don't admit that you're in trouble? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You because, ever heard of Richard Nixon? Well, no. I mean, there's that kind of trouble, but there's trouble where, like, a lot of political scandals are because people are asking you about it. Right. 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 So if they ask you about it and you don't admit to it. Right. Except. Does it count? Because that's kind of what Trump does is people come to him like, oh, no, any other politician, they do this and it's over. But he didn't admit to it. He just didn't accept it. He moved on. I'm not accepting the fact that you think I did something wrong. Right. The only problem is um, the FBI is investigating. And that came out yesterday that they are officially investigating 
Mr. Trump and some of his not Mr. Trump, but his his team. Yeah. And their connections and their connections to Russia. It is. It is interesting. He said he's been doing that since July. Yeah. And then right about what? Late October is when he announced the Hillary Clinton investigation, which just like grabbed the laptop. He announced. Oh, yeah. And then the next week he pulled it back. But he didn't announce that they had been looking at Trump for like six months. Yeah. Haven't has haven't we figured out yet that he's rubber and we're glue and everything that we shoot at him bounces off of him and sticks to us? Huh? Something like that. I don't know. It, it kind of feels confusing just like that. Yeah. Minus the glue part because nothing seems to be sticking. You, you go into these press conferences. Nothing sticks to him. They go into these press conferences and it's like, oh, how's he going to get out of this one? And then they walk away like, how did he do that? Well, it's just distraction. The problem is the FBI is not distracted. No. Just the media are well, because they don't know the truth. But that's what, what we get to hear. We don't get right. to hear from the FBI. No, we don't have to, to hear say it. No comment. We could just all go quiet. He's rubber. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Also, we hear about all of this, uh, these ideas of drones delivering packages for Amazon, for Google, for UPS. Okay, let's say that we all agree that drones will someday be delivering pizzas and your Amazon packages. Agreed. How do we then make sure that that drone doesn't crash into our, you know, our air conditioner on our roof? Right. Or our stuff, or you know, or anything. How do we make sure they don't crash into our power lines? Is your air conditioner on your roof, or no. do you have a swamp cooler? I was thinking. I was thinking when I was growing up, we had a swamp cooler okay. on our roof. Uh, and then I, yeah, before that, we just had a guy that would fan, just fan our family. He lived on the roof. Did they feed you grapes too? It wasn't me. Oh, okay. Sheesh. I think it was me. No, the person fanning usually. Yeah. Does the grapes too? Yeah, we fed yeah, <laughs> we fed him grapes. So we're going to be talking about drone package delivery, meaning what actually needs to take place in order for drones to become safe. How are you going to maneuver a drone two miles because it breaks all the rules right now? You can't fly a drone if you can't see where it's flying. You have to have line of sight to the drone, and uh, we're going to have to we'll figure out what needs to happen if we ever want drones delivering pizzas. Which I'm not sure we do. I like the little kid, you know, or the 50-year-old man trying to pick up an extra dollar. I like him at my door so I can hand him a tip. I'm not tipping a drone. You know what, though? Maybe with drones, Amazon would finally be able to deliver on their promise of two-day shipping. (laughs) We had a great group today. Great crowd. Mm. Early risers. Yeah, and they're quick to jump on a on a comedic moment even if it's not that funny right <laughs> don't argue with their timing it's perfect it's not their timing i'm arguing i'm arguing with their judgment judgment of humor yeah because they were all over that one um so we'll get to that fun plus uh caitlin or i believe well we'll see because somebody's going to be joining us one of our great producers <laughs> is coming in to talk to us we don't know which one somebody's yet. coming in i'm pretty sure we someone owes us something I believe it's Caitlin. That's what I put down. Well, not at 7. No, 7D. Our 7 segment, that's, is that's it what every, I'm Do we have her on every day? I, I'm saying someone. We had a meeting. Do we have McKenna on every day or every other day? 7D, meaning the fourth segment of the first hour. Yeah. 
or for anyone seven who's dimensions. If you're if you've gone one, right? Three D. We're gonna go four D. Four. Might as well go seven. Well, somebody's got dementia. Yeah. So we get to all that fun straight ahead. But first, let's get to the master himself of the news, the Trump follower, hmm. Terry South. Terry. The Department of Homeland Security has banned electronic devices larger than a cell phone in airplane cabins on nonstop flights to the U.S. from 13 countries, including Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Jordan. In an email circulated by the Transportation Security Administration, airlines based in 13 Middle Eastern and African countries were reportedly instructed not to allow laptops, iPads, Kindles, or cameras into the cabin. While the State Department declined to comment on the policy, officials told CNN that embassy officials for the affected countries have been notified. This report is to be is based on intelligence gathered overseas of a possible threat. So scary. I mean, you wonder what the the threat must be. Very detailed. Yeah. Well, there was that one. Uh, it was an overseas flight, but someone walked in and they took some device and put it on the inside of the cabin of the airplane and blew right. a hole in the side of the airplane. Yeah. Probably want to avoid that. Yeah, you're not going to want that. Big day on Capitol Hill for President Trump. FBI Director James Comey testifying before the House Intelligence Committee reported that the FBI has been investigating the a possible Trump campaign-Russia connection since July. The NSA, FBI, and Department of Justice all report that they have no evidence to support President Trump's claim of President Obama ordering a wiretap on Trump Tower. While testifying, James Comey worked in some sports, which I found, you oh. know, refreshing. Yeah. It was kind of boring up until then. Comey used a football metaphor that many people can relate to to describe Vladimir Putin's hatred for Hillary Clinton. And I think it's two closely related sides of the same coin. I mean, to put it in a homely metaphor, I hate the New England Patriots. And no matter who they play, I'd like them to lose. And so I'm at the same time rooting against the Patriots and hoping their opponent beats them because there's only two teams on the field. But what the intelligence community concluded was, early on, the hatred for Mrs. Clinton was was all the way along. Yep. When Mr. Trump became the nominee, there was some sense that it'd be great if he could win, be great if we could help him, but we need to hurt her no matter what. And then it shifted to, he has no chance, so let's just focus on undermining her. That was the judgment of the intelligence So even Russia thought Trump didn't have a chance. There you go. Wow. There's also a Texas, Texas Tech metaphor in the middle of all that, Wow. Too. Yeah, that in, so. But, I mean, Comey it, dissing the Patriots while he's at it. Yeah. Just, I don't know. They've oh. been through enough, haven't they? Yeah. yeah I mean, Man. sad. Republicans released a modified health care bill Monday in an attempt to shore up support among both conservatives and moderates for their legislation to replace the Affordable Care Act before the House votes on Thursday, seven years to the day after President Barack Obama signed the act. Under the modified version of the GOP replacement bill, states would be allowed to require able-bodied Medicaid recipients without dependents to work beginning in October. And states could receive federal funding for the, for the program as a lump sum instead of a per capita allotment for the children and non-disabled, non-elderly adults in uh, taxes imposed by the ACA on the wealthy sectors of the healthcare industry and others to pay for expanded coverage would repeal in 2017 instead of 2018. So they're doing everything they can to make it more appealing to, say, the Freedom Caucus, who have many members have already come out and said they're not going to support this one either. So. Oh, boy. Can't please everybody. No, and, and this isn't going to get a, a CBO rating. They're not going to figure out how much this will cost or who, who, who's <laughs> going to cover. They got in trouble last time. You're not going to do that before Thursday. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. Okay. Uh, also, Neil, Judge Neil Gorsuch sat, uh, Gorsuch sat through his first day of confirmation hearings. He tried to present a message of unity in his talking points, 
the politicians presented a message of division. If you listen to their talking yeah. points, uh, the hearings continue today. I heard last night another 10 hours. Now, this today. is where it gets interesting because yesterday they were just all reading their statements. I believe I called it bloviating yesterday. Yeah, yes. bloviating. Today, everyone's going to start asking questions. They're going to question him. But apparently, they say there hasn't been a more prepared justice right. because he's... He's very thorough. The things that have come up like, ooh, look what he did. or yeah. kind of He's reviewed his 2,000 cases. Yes. So you have a question about one of my cases? I will know let's, everything about it. Let's talk case. about it. Let me get a folder. Yeah. And finally, the New England Patriots uh, jersey that vanished after quarterback Tom Brady wore it in his team's fifth Super Bowl victory last month has been found in Mexico. Oh. Officials said Monday the jersey and a second one Brady wore in a championship victory two years earlier were taken by a former Mexican media executive who had been credentialed to cover the February game in Houston, according to the NFL and law enforcement officials. Mexican authorities found the missing jersey at the home of Martin Mauricio Ortega, a former director of Mexico's La Prensa newspaper, in a raid following the FBI's request. Holy cow. How did they know? I don't know the details. Probably will come out of how, how they tracked it. How did he have both jerseys? Because well, there was a uh, there was a story. They didn't really focus on it that much. But when the the Super Bowl jersey was stolen in uh, what was it February, yeah. there was another kind of story in there that another one of his one of Brady's other jerseys was also stolen. Does Brady just carry all? Does he like have a jersey bag and he just keeps all his jerseys in the bag? Well, no, it wasn't taken in February. It was taken oh. several years ago. Oh man! See, so this is so he's, this, this has is happened. That's why he got so mad. Racket. He goes, "Not again! This isn't going to happen." If this is on eBay, mm. you know, <laughs> this sounds like a Liam Neeson movie. Taken, yeah, it is. Mr. Taken. Brady, your yeah. jersey's been taken, but don't worry, what? I have a very special set of skills. <laughs> I will find it, and whoever is responsible, I will kill them. Wow! Wow! You make a great Liam. My middle name is Liam. I know. That's why I said that. Really? Because I, I thought I remember you were yeah. under the impression it's Lamar or Lavette or whatever you've been calling me. Leroy. Leroy, that's what it was. Um, Other than the White House live tweeting the uh, hearings yesterday, it was really quite boring. Very boring. Yeah. But, you know, it helped. Helped me get through the day. Did it really? Yeah. Oh, well. Um, interesting, though. Isn't it interesting that uh, Director Comey says he doesn't like the Patriots, yet yeah. his people found the Patriot jersey. Unbiased. Mm-hmm. Unbiased law enforcement. That shows you right there. Why didn't that, that come up in the hearing yesterday? I know. I have no idea. That was important information no to idea. have. Here's, here's a personal friend of the president. Here's some other really good news. Ivanka Trump is mm-hmm. going to get a, an office in the West Wing. Yes. They were saying she might get an office in the East Wing, mm. which is where the First Lady's office is. But no, she's going to get an office in the West Wing, which maybe. You know, maybe it it tells us that, you know, Trump needs help. Like he needs somebody near and dear that could can, you know, straighten this mess up. Doesn't. But he had like a chief of staff. Yeah, that he doesn't listen to him. And he's got like a a national advisor guy, Bannon, the special advisor, Darth Darth Bannon, Darth Bannon. So. So what happens when your management structure turns into something flat where there's like 10 people talking to you instead of... Then you listen to no one. Okay. 
This is a problem. Now, this is it's real. I think it's interesting because Donald was known for being such a good administrator, a businessman. You'd well, think he would run his team better. Who, where'd you get that information? Well, from Donald's press guy, Spicer. Yeah. Spicer I'll turn Spicer. to the facts. Gotcha. So apparently this is really, really similar to how he ran his business. Yeah. Well, the other weird thing he uses is competition. Yeah. Amongst his top advisors. Usually you don't want your top advisors competing for your attention. Which could work in a business situation because people are trying to get the best deals, do the best work. But in in, in the presidency, these people then go talk to all of their own press people. So one side of the White House has their favorite press that they leak to, and the other leak to another. And then there's another leak. They don't even know where that leak came from. It's just leaky. It's just right. leaking. Yeah. Maybe he'll run it like The Apprentice. What do you mean? Well, with everybody competing. He should start firing people. You know what I mean? I mean, how many weeks go by before you start firing people on The Apprentice? Not very many. I wouldn't know. Well, he did lose somebody within, what, less than 30 days? Oh, he mm-hmm. did? Yeah. Back to the Russian scandal. <laughs> but he didn't do anything wrong. No. So this is interesting. I mean, uh, Diane Feinstein's like, she's telling her people he's, his days are numbered. Who's? Trump? Diane Feinstein says. Really? She said it on camera to a bunch of her people <laughs> questioning her. That uh, he's probably going to end up removing himself. Wow. Now, and by, kind of alluding to the idea that there's more data because she's on the Intelligence Committee yeah. that people don't know about, and wow. he'll end up removing himself. Okay. Sooner than later. So why don't they kind of move whatever she knows along if it's so. I don't know. But that, by the way, that also came right after they asked her, now you're 80 years old. Yeah. Isn't it time that we get some <laughs> fresh blood in there? And then somewhere in there, she threw. What are your thoughts about term limits, (laughs) ma'am? Oh, this political world that we all have to pay attention to. Crazy. Well, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking drones and uh, what has to happen for a drone to actually be able to deliver a package to your door. So and, and make sure it doesn't, you know, turn into a salad chopper or whatever they call that. A salad shooter. You don't want your drone flying on your porch and then tearing up your plants and your family and your Actually, packages. I don't have any yard tools, so if they could just, you know, kind of hedge those. Yeah, if you could cut or the clip hedges. This, yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Talking Drones up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We have heard the news stories regarding people shooting at drones and they, you know, that they see above their property or organizations asking that drones not be used on their property. Although drones were once used only by the military, they are now taking on a new role in society, such as dropping off packages at the front door. That's the ultimate goal, right? Are drones the future? Here to speak with us today is Michael Brosh, a professor of electrical engineering at The Ohio State University and an expert on drone safety issues. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, just just one, one minor note. I'm actually with Ohio University, which is a oh. university down the road. But, you know what? Oh, uh, yeah. boy. Yeah, let's, let's get that you. right. I don't know why they said the Ohio State, because that them is fighting words out there. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a common mistake. Oh, no thank you. Well, sorry about that. Now, Michael, talk to me 
about uh, drones because we hear we hear Google, um, we hear Amazon, we hear UPS. Drones are the future. They could save millions and millions of dollars of gas and you know you know access uh, to getting getting product and and uh, packages to people. Is is this real? Is this going to happen? Do you think in the future, or is this kind of just a pipe dream? Well, it, it's it's going to happen eventually, but certainly in the near term, there are uh, numerous other value-added services that drones can and are doing. Uh, the delivery aspect is is something that everybody can, you know. It's exciting, and people can uh, can can visualize that. But there are you know numerous other uh, things that drones are doing today uh, that are providing value to our society. Give us an example. What are some What are some of the things drones are doing now? I guess military. We we kind of know they've got a corner on the some of the military market. What else are drones doing that are providing service real time right now? Sure. Well, one of the uh, one of the most common applications is uh, aerial photography, uh, and one of the uh, well, there's numerous uh, applications there, but uh, one of the most common ones is in uh, real estate. Yeah. Uh, and you know, historically, you would have had to be stuck with just uh, photographs that the uh, agent took on the ground because. Uh, you know, getting an airplane or a helicopter nearby would have been just uh, prohibitively expensive. But uh, now with drones, you can put one of these things up uh, 100 feet above the house and take some really beautiful photos and put that in the listing. In fact, I have friends that have a business and they do this and they'll, they can fly the drone through the house. It can take, I mean, if it's a big enough house and, uh, or the business. And they also, um, there's some pretty cool things I'm imagining they could use it for with law enforcement. I mean, it seems like there's there's kind of no end to it, but then all of a sudden there's a lot of laws and a lot of rights that these drones could uh, infringe upon. Yes, well, that's been the concern uh, pretty much from the beginning, and, and I've actually seen a, a, a big shift in uh, in the, the perception and just, just the way drones have been portrayed in the in the uh, general press and the media for example uh, you know five six seven years ago uh, drones were associated solely with military surveillance and 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 the word spy was almost always used with the word drone uh, but then you know as we've seen in the last five or six years uh, with particularly with the proliferation of consumer drones, uh, folks have started to see that, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, these things can be used for other purposes. Having said that, though, uh, the privacy concerns are certainly uh, certainly not to be taken lightly. And one of the things we've kind of talked about on the show is, like, regulating these. Who's, who's in charge of regulation, and sh- should these drones have to face the same you know, scrutiny as a helicopter, um, and because they can cross into airspace, they can interfere with uh, with other with with airplanes, with helicopters. T- talk about who governs the drones. Well, and that's a that's an excellent question. Um, what has typically been the case uh, with manned aircraft, both well, fixed wing airplanes in particular. Uh, helicopters uh, somewhat as well, uh, is that they're, 
there's generally a, a minimum altitude uh, below which a manned aircraft cannot descend. Uh, and, you know, it's generally speaking, just, just kind of roughly speaking, it's 500 feet above unpopulated areas and 1,000 feet above populated areas. And this has been put into, you know, the federal regulations for, for many decades and, and primarily for, for the, uh, uh, just for the comfort and safety of the people on the ground. Well, uh, with drones, of course, uh, the vast majority of the applications that we're talking about, particularly aerial photography, uh, you know, you need to be closer to the ground. And in fact, for safety purposes, you'd rather have the drones and the manned aircraft separated. Right. So whereas the manned aircraft may be at you know 500 feet or above, the drones most likely are, are molded most of the time are going to be 500 feet or below uh, just to keep them separated. Now, uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is still in charge of airspace, uh, but when you start to get in close proximity to uh, property, then you, you start to get into issues of property owners' rights and, and, uh, and things of that nature. Yeah. Does, um, I, I guess... Overall, though, because we've kind of gone from just a remote control flying airplane or a flying helicopter, which I guess would have been a drone, to now um, a real classified drones that are even able now apparently to pick up and carry packages is when there's got to be a ton of engineering issues with trying to fly a drone like UPS had a video that came out of a UPS truck and they can load the drone uh, packages onto the drone from the truck. They can fly the drone to a bunch of different places. And um, but how what are the laws that would involve actually delivering packages? Because isn't it don't you have to fly uh, line of sight? Uh, you have to be able to see your drone in order to 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 fly it. Isn't that the law? Well, current, currently that's the case, with, with very few exceptions. Yes, you're ab- absolutely correct. In, in the United States, uh, the only uh, commercial operate well, for the most part, the only commercial operations that are permitted are exactly what you said. The drone has to be, uh, has to be within the line of sight of the operator on the ground. And, you know, if you're doing you know, if you're a real estate agent doing aerial photography of a listing, that's no problem. Yeah. But as you mentioned, uh, you know, that's not going to get you very far for package delivery. Right. And so, yeah, you've, you've absolutely nailed the one of the critical issues uh, that, uh, that the community is facing, and that is how to safely enable these so-called beyond visual line-of-sight operations, basically when the drone is flying far enough away that the operator can't see it anymore. And that's what has to be done for, uh, you know, for effective... Uh, meaningful package delivery and the issues involved there are how do you get the uh, drone to you know keep from crashing into something else yeah. either a person or an obstacle or or another airplane i mean it does have like four blades spinning so um it's kind of a dangerous thing sure you're going to get your pizza but you might also you know become a victim of a drone is i guess this is your job then huh michael that you you and your engineers and, uh, you know, computer science experts, avionic engineers, they have to solve these problems before this can ever be a reality. 
Indeed, and and it's something that uh, we and our you know colleagues in the industry have been working on for for quite a while now. It turns out that uh, it's it's not a trivial problem by any stretch. We uh. we uh, have you know humans in in manned aircraft, and and you know as long as the weather is good. If the weather's bad, of course you got air traffic control radar, that kind of thing. But if you're if you're in good weather, it's up to the human, the pilot, in the cockpit to the the word the phrase is see and avoid. You have to see other aircraft in the vicinity, and then do the common sense thing. Obviously, avoid them. Well, how do you get a how do you get a, a machine to do that? It turns out it's it's quite difficult, uh, and we have various technologies of radar and lasers and camera-based systems and things like that. And each one has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and you know there are systems being put together which leverage all these sensors, but they tend to be large and heavy and expensive. Uh, which, if you're if you're a large drone, that's fine. You you can accommodate that. But trying to put this onto a small drone uh, turns out to be quite a challenge. Is it uh, so? Are are you seeing that these companies are investing a lot of money in solving these problems, or are they? Is this just kind of a PR idea that they keep putting out there? Well, no, there's definitely there's definitely investment going on, and uh, you see, you know, practically on a weekly basis, you see announcements in the industry of of various uh, uh, sense and avoid type technologies that are either being under development or test or uh, things of that nature. So the the industry is certainly taking this very seriously. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break and continue this discussion in a few minutes. We're speaking with Michael Brosh. He is a professor at the Russ College of Engineering and Technology at Ohio University and is uh, an electrical engineering, computer science, avionics um, professor there and is is walking us through all we need to know about drones and and the reality of them someday delivering anything to your front porch without, you know, creating a problem for you and the family. Interesting stuff, folks. It is the future. Stick with us. We'll be back. Continue the discussion here. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking drones and drone package delivery. What would it actually take to get a package, you know, to fly on a drone from a truck, a UPS truck, let's say, maybe a couple miles to your house and safely deliver the package on your porch? Is that possible? Well, joining us is uh, Michael Brosh. Michael is a professor of electrical engineering at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. He's been conducting navigation systems research for the past 30 years, and for the past 50 years, his research has included drones. He's also a licensed professional engineer um, as well as an instrument-rated commercial pilot, so he helps us... uh, he also, you know, understands the aviation issues as well. So, Michael, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So as far as the ability to deliver a package, there are drones big enough to pick them up to carry them. But uh, one of the problems is to uh, avoid the obstacles. What are some solutions that you've seen in the engineering world coming out that might help the ability to uh, to do that without, you know, hitting an obstacle? Well, there's a couple of, uh, couple of things that we uh, are looking at. One, uh, for... 
uh, en route navigation where you're just trying to get from point to point is to uh, is essentially to fly uh, at a sufficiently high altitude that you're uh, you don't have any uh, obstacles to worry about. Essentially, you're above the trees and buildings, that kind of thing. The the hard part is is when you're taking off and landing, uh, and that's where you're obviously in close proximity to to all of these kinds of obstacles. And and uh, you know we have three primary types of uh, sensors that we use uh, in that regard. Uh, one is radar. Uh, one is a, a a laser version of radar that we call uh, a lidar. And then uh, the third type is essentially conventional uh, camera systems. Mm. They're referred to as electro-optic systems, but basically they're just fancy cameras. So then you got to watch the camera and make sure you're noticing the power line. But a LIDAR, I guess, or a radar would pick up uh, power lines, it would pick up trees, and then the the... I guess the computer on board would just navigate it through those obstacles. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, uh, the the tricky part in this is to you know process the data that the sensor is providing uh, and make sure that you are correctly identifying the obstacles that are nearby, and then also making sure that you're not being uh, bothered by what we call false alarms if the if the sensor erroneously says, "Oh, there's a you know there's an obstacle out there," when there isn't, then that that can you know, obviously cause some disruptions as well. It turns out that each of these sensors has you know has strengths and differences. Not surprisingly, a, a, a laser-based system uh, is not going to work very well in in certain kinds of smoky and foggy conditions, mm. whereas a radar can see right through that. So. Uh, the, basically, the the long term solution is is going to be an integration of of two or three of these sensors in order to get a, a more complete picture of what's actually around you. But then, I guess you're also talking cost, right? Because then everything you add to this and weight, uh, so these then have to be bigger and bigger drones. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, that's that's the catch. Yeah, exactly. The, every, every time you add on a new sensor, you are adding size, weight, power, and, and cost uh, requirements onto the thing. Uh, one uh, aspect of the sensor development that's that's we're going to benefit from is uh, the work on autonomous uh, vehicles. Huh. So they have you know similar concerns of size, weight, power, uh, and it's a potentially a much, much larger market. So uh, what, what I'm anticipating happening is that sensors being developed for the uh, autonomous uh, uh, automobile market will, and we'll be able to leverage that uh, in, the, uh, in the drone industry as mm. well. You also have um, this idea that, I mean, eventually it's, you're, they're going to have to be avoiding other drones. I mean, I can see a day when, you know, you've got a lot of drones flying around. Do, do you how how do you see this happening? I mean, I guess a lot of major laws and management. And I mean, how are the air traffic controllers going to handle it? And how do they currently interact or do they interact with drones? Well, that's a great question. And, and of course, uh, to a certain extent, our modern air traffic control system uh, it has been developed 
partially in response to uh, a legacy system back, you know, a hundred years ago, where there there was no radar and 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 there was a famous accident in the 1950s of uh, over the Grand Canyon where two passenger uh, jets ended up colliding and. And you know it was a horrendous loss of life, and and as a response to that, uh, you know the FAA uh, came into being, and the the entire uh, air traffic surveillance network with radar and, and all of this stuff led to what we have today. So, um, how are drones going to fit into that mix? Well, a couple of things. One, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're likely going to have a segregation of of airspace. Higher altitudes are mostly going to be for, for manned aircraft, lower altitudes for the drones. Uh, you'll still have the issue of how do the drones stay away from each other. Uh, and that'll be handled through a combination of uh, procedures. So over certain airspace, you know, drones flying in certain directions will be at certain altitudes. And if you're flying in an opposite direction, you'll be at a different altitude. Hmm. That's, that's the way we handle it for manned aircraft. This is still in development. NASA has entire research programs on basically drone air traffic control. Ultimately, though, there will be a need for each drone to be able to see and avoid other nearby drones. Do you think... Uh, you've been through pilot training and you've been through instrument certification. Do you think there will be a day where drone operators will be required to get similar, you know, licensing, similar ratings? Oh, they already are. Are uh, they? As a matter of fact, the uh, um, the FAA put into place. Uh, well, prior to this rule, um, there was no uh, easy provision for folks to fly drones commercially uh, except through a, uh, a waiver process. But last year they put in place a new regulation. It's called Part 107, uh, and it's for so-called small UAVs, basically those UAVs less than 55 pounds. Uh, and if you want to operate commercially, uh, then, uh, yeah, there's the, you, you have to get a license. And oh, wow. You have to learn about uh, airspace rules and regulations and, and things of this nature. That's great. I mean, so at least we're we're doing something, right, to, to, to make sure that not anyone can put them out there. Because, again, we hear stories of, you know, near midair collisions with drones, near airports. I mean, I know there's laws about that. I guess in the end, what uh, – what else would you? What else do you excite you as a professor that studies this, that is working on this? Where else do you see that these will benefit us? Well, uh, it's, so a couple of things. One, you 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 did mention that uh, you know there there are these sightings of drones in in places where they shouldn't be, and so one of the big challenges we have in the industry is uh, to a certain extent just. Uh, public awareness and, and education. Uh, you, you've got folks that, that fly these things and, and may not necessarily be aware of the danger they're posing if they're flying them close to airports, things of that nature. So that's one of the challenges that we have is just better, uh, better uh, public awareness. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, having said that, uh, on the positive side, you know, where, where you know, can these things uh, m- you know, make the most impact? Uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that I see uh, that it'll it'll help tremendously is in uh, what we call infrastructure inspection, and so you have say 
uh, very tall radio towers, mm. or you have uh, wind uh, turbines for for power generation. You know these these humongous uh, wind turbines. Uh, you know, this infrastructure has to be inspected to see if parts are starting to wear out or fail or corrode, you know, things of this nature. And historically, we've had to send humans up, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet into the, into the air in order to, to look at these things. And, you know, not surprisingly, accidents happen. People die as a result of these inspections. Uh, we may very well be able to eliminate that uh, by using drones. You know, send the drone up there with a high-resolution camera. Uh, take a look at the bridge or the tower or the you know the uh, the wind turbine and, and do your inspection all from the safety of the ground. I think that's. I mean, just that uh, plus you know fi- fighting fires. I mean, sending being able to send drones up in certain places. I think could be valuable. There's 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 so many I think powerful opportunities that technology can can help us with and secure our even lives if if we just know how to manage it manage it and make it work. Well, we appreciate you, Michael Brosh. Thank you again and uh, your great work there at Ohio University. Um, boy, thank heavens there's some people thinking about this, right? Can you imagine if all of a sudden we just were making the laws without? some experts behind the scene trying to figure out what the laws need to look like. We'll take a break, come back, continue uh, giving you the insight, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we've talked Trump. We're going back to Trump. One of the things that's happening with President Trump as the as the president, a lot of CEOs, corporate leaders, they they now are a little worried because Trump could immediately put your company on notice. Trump could immediately, once he puts your company on notice for doing something he doesn't like, then you could have your stock drop. Trump said last night he was in Kentucky. Yeah. He had a, uh, a rally because that's what you do. Um, he spoke about Colin Kaepernick. Now, he's the quarterback yeah. of the 49ers who would take a knee during the national anthem. Trump says that no no NFL team is, is looking to sign Colin Kaepernick as a quarterback because they're afraid of the Trump backlash on Twitter. That what he that he guarantees what happened because he's not respecting the flag. So he's taking some credit for this. Yes. Okay. So whether that's true or not, that's that sort of perception. He influences am, amongst companies. There yeah. are CEOs in Silicon Valley, in CEOs in Detroit with the auto companies, CEO in all kinds of uh, yeah. industries across the across the spectrum. There that are they have their social media teams up at three a.m. Eastern. You know, so on the West Coast, that's like what one o'clock, midnight, something like that, where these people are up waiting for Donald Trump to tweet something because they don't want to wake up no. and their company's been a, been a featured in his Twitter feed. You could lose millions, hundreds of millions. Yeah. So they're out there trying to combat this. So, okay. Uh, I found this on there's a website called Axios. It's a new kind yeah. of a news website. It's uh, conversations with executives, top CEOs, and here's some of their tips of people who have dealt with Trump in business, and now you have to walk in and talk to him in the White House. Step one: get to the table, whether you love him or not. 
go to the table because many are saying, hey, Jeff Bezos ought not be sitting down at the table with Trump because he's nobody likes him. But they're saying get to the table. You got to get face to face with this guy. Talk to him. He's, he's a transactional guy. He wants to see you. Yeah. Step two was give him something he can call a win. Some companies are like, hey, we're announcing some jobs that they announced a year and a half ago that they were going to do anyways. And they let but Trump announce Trump takes the credit. That's not a bad idea. Then he feels like... If hey, you're going to have an increase in jobs, tell Trump. They say he has an elastic view of winning. Yeah. He just wants to put his name on the winning. Uh, find A uh, three is find and exploit common ground. Find and exploit common ground. People, real estate, politics, private aircraft. Trump has been most engaged and open-minded when dealing with aerospace companies, partly because he can talk planes because, you know, he owns one. And uh, infrastructure execs, because he spent his career building high-rises. He has a surface level at best understanding of most policies, so go in. For uh, don't, going in for any sort of policy yeah, discussion. Yeah, don't go deep. Work. No, no, no. Just talk. Hey, I have golf clubs. You have golf clubs. Do you want to do a golf club deal? So talk on something he's going to yeah. relate to. Smart. Four. Know that he's a vindictive guy who harbors grudges long beyond the moment. So don't cross. Don't him. take him off. <laughs> That's great advice. And five. Work Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner both been sitting on key meetings and often get Trump alone afterwards to shape reaction and follow up to the interaction. Both are accessible by text and cell and like playing the role of Trump whisperer. Uh, really? So get them, get the Trump whisperers involved. Yeah. Those are his influencers. Probably now Ivanka, if, if you're, if well, that's yeah. more to your advantage, if you run a company, maybe she's the one you go after. Trudeau, they're saying Trudeau from Canada is really getting well, Ivanka involved. Right, yeah. Maybe over-involved. Possibly. That's weird. You can't even have a friend mm. in politics without everybody thinking there's more going on. Right. If you look at the photographs, it'll come out of that. It's kind of weird. Um... <laughs> Okay, well, that's great advice because I know uh, Jeff wanted to pitch a, a, an idea to Donald Trump. Well, it. it was a different Don. Oh, what Don? Oh, yeah. Don Shaline. Oh, Don. Oh, that Don. Our Don. Okay. I thought you were talking about Donald Trump. You wanted to pitch a new show, but I guess well, he's a media. He probably wouldn't have a lot of say in that. Well, he's a media mogul. No, he don't get me wrong. Yeah, he'd probably have some great advice. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, he would have to answer to Don Shaline. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. We all answer to Don Shaline. Let's not be, let's not lie. Hey, uh, interesting. Again, it's just, the president's just getting started. He's in day, what, 60-something. Seems like, you know. 160. No, he's just getting started. And so, you know, he's still got he's still got legs, he's still got time. Don't believe the press. Don't, well, believe part of what they're saying. Don't believe everything they're saying. That's what Donald's taught us. Don't believe everything the press is saying. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll continue the journey to help you, you know, get a leg up in life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here. Buckle your seatbelt. It's uh, Goof Off Day. This is the day we hold dear to our heart. Goof Off Day. It's the day, folks, you just get to step back from the rigors and pressures of everyday life and goof off. Many would say, well, what's different about today than every other day? Today we get to do it without any problems, without it's getting sanctioned. in trouble. Yeah, it's the sanctioned goof off day. We're, it's, it's so out of control today, we're watching television in the studio. Whoa. Well, I'm not, but... You guys they're, are they're watching the cooking with show. Buttermilk and baking soda <laughs> on BYU TV. Hey, happy goof off day! Uh, interesting today. Uh, I'm sure there's no connection. I think they're starting to they're they're about to vote on the um, the big bill, the big health care bill. That's on Thursday. Trump, uh, what's it called? Trump Care. No. Trump cares. Trump no, no, cares. No, 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 no. The White House says absolutely not. No, well, no. It's Trump's now. No, no. It was Obama's. Now it's Trump's. Trump care. Well, it was. It's Paul Ryan's. Ryan the White House keeps Trump trying to say if you're going to call it something, call it Ryan Care. Oh, that, let's, that let's doesn't you, have the same zinger. Let's use the actual name of the bill, not we name it after the we president. We didn't call it Pelosi Care. Well, no. We called it Obamacare. Well, yeah. So we, we will have to call this. Trump care. And boy, the, the they're getting restless on the Hill. Yes. The conservative wing, the Freedom Caucus. Is that what they call them? That's like the the orthodox conservative, conservative. sort of extreme sort of wing. Yeah. They're not liking the bill. Not so then's got fighting words now. They've gone so far to say don't hold the vote. Yeah. You, you're, it's not gonna work. Don't look, hold the vote. You'll look it'll dumb. Look bad. Yeah. So this is all part of the art of the deal. Is it? Apparently they're making a deal. Well, he is the deal maker. Yeah. Wait. Huh? That was the name of his book. Yeah. You mean, yeah. Yeah. That's the name of the book. And everyone's using it against him now. Hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Well, they've all read the book. Yeah. I mean, Paul Ryan's been walking around Capitol Hill holding the book under his Rand, arm. Rand Paul just quoted the book in an interview on MSNBC. It's great. Like, there's, yeah, I've read The Art of the Deal, and now we're about ready to negotiate. We're ready to negotiate. Sure, the vote's in a day, yeah. but we're ready to negotiate. And, and they just amended the thing with a bunch of new additions yeah. to try to make it more palatable. Right. And no apparently, one knows what those yeah. are. But uh, apparently it's not quite there yet. Yeah, it still looks like Obamacare. So this is exciting, which is, again, why we're celebrating Goof Off Day. Okay, great. So um, we'll talk about, I'm sure in the news, more about this incredible um, – Standoff in a potential standoff. It hasn't happened yet, but the standoff will be tomorrow. It's but it's looking crazy. We're in pre-standoff mode. Plus, Gorsuch is uh, continuing. His hearings continue today. Yeah, they're very interesting. A if, lot of people are like, "Wow, you watch him? It's mesmerizing." It, I, it, he sits there. He's yeah. very. He answers all the questions. Yeah, he's not really. Not, I mean, he he doesn't answer because he can't. Well, he answers he's, what he can. He's weird because he's a sitting judge. He's a sitting yeah. judge, so judges can't. Comment even more so than if he was just like some senator, he, he could comment. He, he doesn't more. want to bias himself yeah. so for some case he yeah. may hear in a year by yeah. saying that he has some opinion on. That's something. a sweet position to be in because yeah. he doesn't have to throw himself out there too far. It's kind of nice. And certain Congress people are you know steaming because they want answers. 
Give me answers. So uh, we'll get to the news headlines there. We're also going to be talking about the psychology of white-collar criminals. We have a guest coming on that wrote a, a really substantial book about he, – he interviewed 50 white-collar criminals. Hmm. And he found out uh, some pretty interesting things about how they think. What motivates them to do these things? Yeah. And there's, there's one weird problem with white-collar crime that's different than like a mugging. In a mugging, you see the victim. In a white-collar crime, a lot of times you don't see the victims. It's all on paper. So it doesn't hit you as hard, which may explain why we're so hard on our listeners because we don't see them. Right. You know, so it's kind of like a white-collar crime. Oh, wow. Radio broadcasting. That's an interesting way. There is some criminal activity happening during this show. Yeah. Like criminal, but like, not, like, not, like, not like the police need to come, but many would cr- claim it's – Mm, I'm sure if the police did come, they'd find something. Well, I'm sure it would be you'd be arrested for stealing candy from students here. And if we're going to talk about it, hmm. I don't know if we're going to talk about. I it. I disagree with that. And at some point, we need to get to uh, Elmo had a HR exit interview. Elmo did. Yeah. Really. Yeah, because you know they're saying, well, you know, if we're going to cut the budget, we can't keep all these puppets. So they puppets had to let staff. Elmo go. They had an exit interview. He's wow. their top performer. He didn't take it well. Didn't he? Did he throw a fit? Well, you know. Did security escort him out? Oh, this is exciting. Okay, yeah. well, this is all straight ahead. I think Big Bird conducted the interview, didn't he? Ah, oh, Big Bird. Never trust a person with tiny, tiny little arms. That's it. Or wings. Wings. Let's uh, head to the news. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Apparently, President Trump was speaking Americanese when he claimed... Without proof that he was wiretapped by President Obama. This according to CNN commentator and Trump surrogate Jeffrey Lord. He said this on Monday. I I was on a a radio talk show in Birmingham, Alabama today, the Richard Dixon show by name. And we were talking about the tweet about uh, wiretapping and all this sort of thing. And the host said to me that he is talking to his audience. And he says, you know, we speak Americanese out here and we know what he meant. What he meant was... The FBI was, or somebody was surveilling him, that's what he thinks. He says, we get what he's saying. He says, and all you fancy people up here are, are you know, trying to take this in another direction. Jeff, what you're arguing then is the FBI and the Justice Department are mistaken for taking the president literally because they don't speak... Uh, Americanese. <laughs> Americanese because they're so uh, part I mean, of Washington that I, I, they are actually taking well, the president. I, 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 I read this, and I have to tell you, this is such a classic Washington story. He blamed, do, you he blamed, the president, he do you believe this president of the United States is a congenital liar? No. Do you believe he has lied repeatedly? But what do you mean by lied repeatedly? So there was like 10 people on that panel. Yeah. Nine of them said he lied, except for Lord, yeah. because he's his... Surrogate. Right. But what do you think of that? Americanese. Is that a new way we well, can go with this? Or? I think, I think, no. Okay. <laughs> but here's, I think, the difference, and this is maybe what he may have been getting at. His followers don't care. Yeah. His followers don't care because he, the, he, he speaks a little truth. Yes. And they'll read into the little truth and make it real truth, and they'll read into the big lie and make it no lie. But I think the point is they don't care. But what he's, what is happening is more than half the country cares, that 60% of the country cares. Right. 37% don't care. My thought is you can read into people yeah. that way. Are they literal or not? When you know who they are. Right. When you don't know who they are, everything matters. Right. Exactly. So, eh, whatever. 
Yeah. So Americanese, that's the new that's a great word. point there. President Trump warned House Republicans Tuesday that a vote against the GOP-backed American Health Care Act could jeopardize their chances of winning re-election in the 2018 midterms. He goes on, I honestly think many of you will lose your seats in 2018 if you don't get this done, Trump said, in, in an attempt to rally fence-sitters ahead of the scheduled vote on Thursday on the Obamacare replacement plan. Trump apparently predicted if Republican support for propo- or the proposal, they could gain 10 seats in the Senate. Wow. Which would be huge, because then they wouldn't well, have to get their 60. Yeah, and then they wouldn't have to listen to any of this. The House Freedom Caucus said it has enough no votes to defeat the bill, and apparently Trump's comments Tuesday didn't exactly change their minds. Hmm. So, Supreme Court nominee... Uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch on Thursday, on Tuesday refused to comment on how he would rule on President Trump's immigration executive order should he be confirmed and should he, the travel ban make it to the Supreme Court. During the second day of his Senate confirmation hearing, Gorsuch uh, maintained he, it would be grossly improper for him to give any indication on how he would rule on any case, especially one currently being litigated. Gorsuch said he never promised Trump he'd overturn Roe versus Wade. Because that's just not what judges yeah. do. Yeah, you don't do that. He also said if he would have walked out of the yeah, room, he would have walked out of the room if that would have been the uh, something he was asked. Right. Finally, Canadian diplomats have been told to stop using life-size cardboard cutouts of Justin Trudeau as prime at promotional events. So apparently, there's Canadian uh, embassies, and they have kind of a "Hey, come get to know Canada" events. And they have this cardboard cutout of the president of the oh, country, really? and people come over and pose with it. The government's like, eh, we may not want to do that. <laughs> yeah, let's not be doing that, kids. Says, we're aware of instances where our mission in the U.S. has decided to purchase and use these cutouts. Uh, they've been asked to stop it, basically. How much do you think a cutout of a world leader, say oh, about, you know, uh, life-size, six life feet size, tall? I'll, 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 go with, I'll go with $180. Ooh, Jeff? Uh, twenty dollars if you go to Kinkos. Is that even around anymore, Kinkos? Um, I don't, th- I don't know yeah. anymore. Mm. It's like FedEx Kinkos yeah. now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be more than a hundred dollars. It's one hundred forty-seven dollars. <sighs> yeah, seventy-nine cents. Place yeah. in Pittsburgh will make them for you. Oh, except I win because you yeah. were over. You were over. He went low. Price is right. I could have bid a dollar and I would have been right. You $1. know what? I'm going to get you a cut out of me. Just have to, take, to take home. Don't we have those huge? Po- oh, those are more those are posters. posters. Yeah. But I, I want a life size of me. Okay. Oh, I have. There's one of me somewhere. But I'm gonna. I want to. You want to get one for me? Is that me. what you said? Yeah. But then Terry's gonna get me some darts to accompany that. We'll just bring dart guns. Wow. It'll be awesome. <sighs> it's kind of rude. Yeah. Hey, what's going on with the NBA and the Earth is flat? Yes, this is interesting. What is the deal? Because apparently. Now everybody's in on it. So there's a point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers. His name is Kyrie Irving. Mm -hmm. He came out over the uh, All-Star break, which was in mid-February, and said that uh, he was on some podcast and he was talking about how he believes the world is flat. Yeah. Now, he didn't really go into detail of why he believes that. He just thinks that everyone should look into things and form their own opinion. Like, Like he has. Yes, that the world is flat. Right. Alternative facts. Then the uh, a few weeks ago on uh, TNT has an NBA kind of pre post game type show. Right. And Shaquille O'Neal's on there. Charles Barkley's on there. There's some other people. It's true. The Earth is flat. O'Neal said. Yeah, Shaquille. They were talking to him. They said at one point they were they showed like a picture of the full moon as they came back from commercial, and then they were talking about they were making some trip to Los Angeles, and Shaquille O'Neal was saying. Uh, do, 
which is, which is further, Los Angeles or to the moon? And they all just kind of looked at him, and he said, he goes, well, he, and they go, what do you mean? What do you mean, which is further? Of course, Los, uh, the moon is further. Los Angeles is, is closer. It's just yeah. gone. And he's like, well, no, I walk outside. I look up. I can see the moon. I can't see California. Yeah. I think the moon's closer. Maybe he can't see California. Now, this is a very tall Because the individual. earth is round. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, so, maybe. So in his head, he's like, the moon's closer because I can yeah. see it. It's brilliant science. And so yesterday, Charles Barkley was on a uh, sports radio show, and he's like, Kyrie Irving went to 30 games worth of college because he basically was in college and eligible until the college basketball season was over, then dropped out because he went pro. Mm. He doesn't need to go to, go to school yeah, right, anymore. Right, 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 right. Shaquille O'Neal has a degree. He went yeah. to three years of college, came back, finished. He wants to be a – I mean, this whole, like, he wants to be a cop, that kind of thing yeah. has been going on for quite a while. You think so he'd understand? You this. think he'd have more no. education? But oh, he's. But, but is this an education thing, or do people study and find new facts? This, this, this is how O'Neill explains it. The blank looks flat to me. He swore. Yeah. Uh, I do not go up and down on a three hundred and sixty degree angle and all that stuff about gravity. Have you looked outside of Atlanta lately and seen all these buildings? So you mean to tell me that China is under us? Yeah. China is under us. It's not. The world is flat. Or, or the idea that you have this round thing and we're somehow standing on yeah. a round thing that's How rotating. You, How does that work? You'd slide right off. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a whole flat earth society. And if you, yeah, you can read all about it. But uh, So, by the way, now a professor of geology and geophysics um, at the Hall of Famers LSU, at oh, yeah. uh, O'Kill's LSU, Shaquille O'Neal's LSU, yeah. um, is saying people who have a big public presence have a responsibility to be considerate of their bully pulpit when they make statements like this. This In this particular case, it's unusual and perhaps unfortunate that people should be basing our actions on the best available knowledge. Yes. Does Shaquille have an answer to what the astronauts see as they leave the orbit of Earth and they look back and see Earth. Well, then you might get into maybe some conspiratorial sort of thoughts. Yeah, that... maybe. Well, maybe the glass is weird. Yeah. So it makes everything look round. Right. It's concave or something. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Anyway, um, so just, as, you know, as far as we have heard, the Earth's still round. Yeah. According to the latest reporting, the, the Earth is round. Earth is still round. Uh, and President Trump is still president. Yes. And doing his best. Trump care is on its way to be voted on tomorrow. Just updating you on everything. Should they add that to the budget? Which? Trump care? Trump's proposed budget. Should they have more education on the shape and status of the yeah, earth? Yeah, I have a feeling they're going to be taking away. Yeah, probably. There's a lot of taking away for, from the budget. I kind of get the feeling that Trump thinks that the, the earth is flat as well. Yeah. Might. I don't know. He hasn't Crazy. been asked. How do we know? No, let's not ask. Someone him. probably should bring that up in an let's interview. Just get the, let's just get all the questions we already have out there answered, then let's worry about the earth. Boy. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. I hate it when they talk about this in the locker room. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the psychology of white-collar criminals. What allows somebody to embezzle or steal or, you know, do whatever they have to on a level, a white-collar level? Is it different than just... The average crime on the street? It is. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
White collar criminals are categorized as businessmen or government officials who commit a financially motivated but nonviolent crime. Eugene Soltis uh, interviewed 50 former executives about their crimes to learn how they tick, to learn how they think in his book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White Collar Criminal. Soltis dives deeper into the stories of these once seemingly successful business leaders. And today we have the benefit of having him with us to talk about his findings. Dr. Soltis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. This is uh, this was a really a very interesting um, read, and boy, the book, by the way, is huge. Well done, Doctor Soltis. <laughs> Thank you. Very well researched. Now, there's there's a different psychology apparently of a white collar criminal and um, uh, and just the average you know mugging on the street. Is that what you learned? Yeah, there's some very different characteristics associated with white collar crime. Uh, in particular, they're not close, intimate, physical offenses. Uh, In most cases, you don't need to get near uh, or even ever know who the victim is. Um, As a result, it it makes it easier to perpetrate in many instances these these really uh, damaging offenses without ever really feeling that you're actually doing harm to someone specific. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that so does does their crime sneak up on them then because of that? Do they not even fully get how impactful this is? That's the part that it, it took me a while to really uh, get as I spoke to many of these former executives is that they don't fully understand when they cross the line. And I think that's genuine. It's just because sometimes the line is blurry in business. But even afterwards, they understand what they did was was harmful in that they're now facing some serious consequences because of that, but it doesn't really resonate in their gut that they did something so terrible. Uh, take something like insider trading. I mean, it's this kind of abstract crime that you uh, undermine the integrity of the financial markets, but really in the scheme of things, if you made $50,000 from trading, it's not going to really instigate this really strong feeling that you've seemingly undermined the well-being of the entire U.S. financial system. Right. And, and they're really, they're just business people. And one of the points you bring up in the book is they real, they kind of do a cost-benefit analysis on the crime, and the cost-benefit pays off in their mind. Yeah, and a lot, a lot, of, these, a lot of these instances, yeah, it's, it's blurry. I, how I like to think of it is it's a failure of, of managerial intuition. They don't actually see the harm associated with the actions at the time which is really different. I mean, right now, if they drop the prohibition against murder, in most towns and communities, I could still walk outside. I wouldn't be worried about a pile of people coming to run up right. and stab me. We have a natural inclination, if you're a reasonably socialized person, to not commit that kind of harm. But in the business world, where a lot of these things, you're highly incentivized, highly motivated to push it more and more aggressively, uh, with, when those, in those rules and regulations are sometimes a little bit blurry um, or can be easily overlooked, uh, that's when you can actually push ahead uh, and go go beyond this line and uh, and commit some things that are pretty damaging and illicit in the process. Now, is this how you got onto this topic? I mean, you're a business professor at Harvard, for heaven's sakes, <laughs> and now you're and now you're going to the prisons and the pokey, and you're talking to the these these people. Um, what was your what was your goal? What was your motive? What was your drive? Uh, so my drive was, I, it, this started not as a research project or as an academic inquiry. Uh, rather, this started as, as a personal curiosity. I think like most people, when you look at the, the front pages of the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times and actually see uh, yet another one of these 
corporate titans, people that, you know, like many people, I looked up to a number of these individuals. Yeah. These are the people that speak at our, our university commencements that are the big donors in society and wondered kind of what the heck happened again. Uh, so this started out with just uh, one late one evening, sending, sending uh, a, a few letters to some well-known executives from Enron and Computer Associates and Tyco and asking them some just questions that were on, uh, that were on my mind. And from that, uh, one, uh, this was one of the first letters I received from Dennis Kozwalski, the former CEO of Tyco, mm. who was convicted of embezzling over $100 million while he was actually one of the top CEOs in the country, uh, said, sure, uh, I clearly have plenty of time on my hands now. Come, <laughs> come visit me and we can chat. Wow. Did you, were you excited to think, okay, I'm going to go pick this guy's brain? Yeah, so initially it was excitement because I mean, this is someone that you've, you've kind of read about for years, both in, in positive and then more recently in kind of a negative context. Uh, so it kind of excitement. But then when I pulled up to the prison, I remember this the first time. And, and this is a, a, a low to medium security. So it, it's, it's just fencing with the big barbed wire and a couple layers. And then you, you walk in. The prison's and this is, you know, again, a, a low-slash-medium security. Uh, it's exactly what you expect a prison is like, though. It's, it's yeah. cold. It's dirty. It's noisy. It's really uncomfortable. And it's actually something throughout this project. I've never, I never gained, let's say, uh, a greater comfort for going to visit people in prison because it's, it's, a, it's a tough, nasty, rough environment. Mm. In fact, you, you talk about that, too, where a, a lot of these people were right before they were caught— doing what they were doing. They were also, you know, on the top 10 lists in magazines and they were speaking in, in big, uh, big, in big groups. And they, they had a lot of accolades. They had a lot of attention. They were all, a lot of them at the peak of their career, right? These didn't seem like desperate people. No, not, not at all. I mean, some of the people that are in the book, uh, I mean, take someone like, you know, Raja Gupta. I mean, this is the former managing director of McKinsey and Company. Oh. I mean, really one of the most you know, celebrated business leaders uh, in, in the world. Uh, it really had seemingly everything going, you know, personally and professionally. And, you know, ultimately in the end, he, 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting, is calling up a, a billionaire hedge fund trader and divulging what he just learned at a Goldman Sachs board meeting. Mm. Um, Something that's just seen in such contradiction to a career that you don't get to the top of McKinsey after 30 years by being sloppy. Uh, I mean, he's thoughtful, strategic throughout his entire career, but then it was able to make these, these really quite compromised-looking decisions uh, after that time, which is why I think when we think about some of these challenges that executives face, they're how easily influenced we are. Uh, if we start spending time around people with different norms and beliefs and kind of different rule books, we're going to start playing by those different norms in that different rule book. And, you know, examples like his and some of the others I talk about in the book are I really, in many ways, I look at a tragedy uh, to, see, to see what happens to these business leaders and the consequences that has uh, on all of us. Hmm. Was it when, when they would act out like Raja did or others, was it, were they following someone else's example usually, or were they just innovating illegally? So, so yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think in some cases it, there, there's, there's some people in both camps. Uh, sometimes it's, this is just how the game is played. Uh, a lot of people, you know, some of your listeners might have heard some of these kind of recent, the, the LIBOR or the FX kind of rigging. Um, yeah, right. Of, uh, this is kind of traders from all around the world 
that were literally fixing the interest rates. But this is something where, I mean, they were doing this openly over their chat to different banks. I mean, this is something. They weren't being particularly sneaky about it. I right. mean, the transcripts are all right there describing what was going on. They're joking about how they're rigging it. This is something where I think if any of us would have, you know, straight out of college, joined one of these, one of these banks, which is virtually any large bank that had one of these desks, your boss would have said, you know, when you need something moved around, you just kind of call your buddies at the other bank and you talk about it and you kind of adjust the things as needed. And that's just how this is done. Huh. It's what not only what we do at our firm, it's what all the other firms do. So you would say, oh, this is how I, this is how I work in this market. This is just how, how the game is played. So it's not surprising that you would adopt that. Um, in other cases, when I think of something like Enron, though, they were being innovative hmm. uh, in that every time they saw a, a, another rule or regulation that could have kind of stopped them, they sat back and said, we see that as a problem. If we think a little bit harder, a little bit more in a more clever fashion, can we figure out a way around this? And, and ultimately, that I see is their, their failure. It wasn't, wasn't a lack of ideas, but it's the fact that they never saw a stoplight a stop or stop sign and said, you know, we just need to stop here. They thought, well, let's just take a little turn, go around this, and we can go faster. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, what was the total? So you had 50 people you visited and, and researched, but the, the total theft that they took was how much? Did you ever add that up? Oh, gosh. So that would be, I mean, once, once you put Bernie Madoff in the mix. Oh, that's true. Uh, huh? I mean, you have 20 billion there that in some sense, the other ones, I mean, when you start talking hundreds of millions, those are big numbers, but yeah. it just starts getting dwarfed. But the couple major Ponzi scheme individuals I spoke with, so, uh, I mean, well, you know, the, the, the kind of the three largest uh, in, in history, or four largest, are Bernie Madoff, Tom Peters, Alan Stanford, uh, and Stephen Hoffenberg. Um, I spent time with all of them, and those are all in the you know billions, multi billions wow. of dollars. Uh, so it's it's Ponzi schemes that that really you could say add up. Yeah, and it's the the interesting thing about all of just if we just took those group the the Stan, uh, Stanford Hoffen is it Hoffenberg Hoffenberg yeah Hoffenberg and Madoff just the but that was hundreds or thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people who lost their pensions lost money lost I mean th- these few people impacted a lot of people. Yeah, I mean Hoffenberg. I mean, most of the the notes that he was he was ultimately uh, that he was taking and that were fraudulent, they were from uh, religious organizations and uh, pension funds. Wow! Uh, in many instances, uh, you know, in, he thought like many other people that you know he would get out of this hole. That this was a, as Madoff often said, this is a was going to be a temporary situation where you know you you push forward. Um, but certainly, and I think Madoff is is exceptional in this regard that there was a time which he even stopped trading so any belief that he could get out of it so to speak uh was really just a an unrealistic uh, entirely unrealistic belief there there wasn't ever a chance once you actually stopped trading yeah um, most of the other ponzi schemes people are doing something uh, i could say uh, if we were going to do it in a finance class they're never going to get out of it but they could at least pretend that they could because they were moving some things around right right um, right well, I guess that's that illusion um, is also maybe part of their hubris, right? That they that keeps this whole thing going, the illusion that they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I think. I mean, that 
that helps make it, I think, a bit more comforting. Yeah. The challenge I've often faced when I think of, I mean, take someone like Madoff. I mean, I think we would all like to say we would, we would obviously never get in that situation right. in the first place. But just imagine, let's put ourselves in the position that we're already in this hole. We're already down, you know, billions a, of dollars. A bill, yeah. We can't get out of it. We, we, we have a day in which all our investors are calling and praising us, wanting to give us more money. Regulars are calling to get our, our expert opinions because we're one of the leaders in the market. Then that day we go home, it's Friday night, we go home to our beautiful penthouse, we see our, our lovely wife, our two kids that also work mm. in the firm, and, and, you know, after dinner we retire to our office, uh, and we say, you know what, I, this is wrong, I, this needs to stop. I need to call, you know, the FBI or the SEC to get this to stop. Most of us, I think, would say, I'll do that next week. I'll do that. Yeah. Two more days of, with my family, with, and the next week would come and the same thing would happen again. You'd say, I, I know this should stop, but... I'll do it next week. And unless someone stops you, unless someone literally comes and pounds, uh, pounds on your door and pulls you out in handcuffs, you just kind of keep it going. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think this is something so exceptional about Madoff or any of these characters in the book. It's something, if any of us was to fall prey and get in that situation, I think we would, most of us, unfortunately, would probably keep it going like right, that. Right, right. We, yeah, we would, we don't, we want to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That's, <laughs> yeah. we, we don't uh, want to go through this. we think in the short this. run, uh, we want one more dinner at home That's uh, right. before yeah. we're going to be locked up forever. Well, and, and then the shame and the humiliation and this supposed, you know, image you've built is going to collapse and... Ah, oh, that's got to be incredibly Friend, stressful. I mean, all the friends, everyone that you've met, met your entire career, yeah. th- those are the first people. I mean, I think one thing that everyone has expressed to me is that, not to say this is a great strategy of actually figuring out who your real friends are, but when something like this happens, like those executives in my book, they find out very quickly who were their real friends and who were those friends because they were either wealthy or powerful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and not surprisingly... 99% of the people turn out to be uh, fleeing and they yeah. never hear from again. Not your real friend. Uh, we're speaking with Eugene F. Sol- Soltis. He is a, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and is the author of the book, uh, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminals. Um, interesting, interesting topic. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Eugene F. Soltis. He is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and author of the book, Why They Do It, uh, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminal. And um, the fun thing about this, by the way, the book is is huge. And Eugene, I, first of all, did you visit, I guess you visited how many prisons to do this? And you ended up talking to 50, um, 50 white collar criminals, right? I, I did. Uh, so, uh, believe it or not, there were actually a couple prisons. Uh, like B- Bernie Madoff is actually the person I've spent the most time with. Uh, I mean, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we'd speak on the phone, hundreds of pages of letters and emails. Wow. Um, I've actually never had the chance to visit him in prison. Uh, I've got rejected from the prison, though. Uh, oh, really? Apparently, I, provi- I, I create a safety hazard 
for the prison. Uh, I think they just well, want yeah. less visitors. <laughs> You're from Harvard. <laughs> you yeah, guys can't be yeah, I guess, you know, uh, my, my, wife, my wife would be, be amazed to hear that I'm the yeah. danger there. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you're a threat. Um, so that's interesting. So you had a lot of interaction with Bernie Madoff. And so t- what, what, did you, like, what else shocks you in all of your learning and, and, and working with these people, uh, the white-collar criminals, really the cream of the white-collar criminal crop? What, um, what, what did you learn? What stands out? I think one of the things that really surprised me is the the lack of remorse, which which really took me a long time to kind of to resonate with yeah. me. Um, and that I mean, when people were sent away in these positions, it, they had remorse. They missed their you know daughter's graduation, their son's birthday, you know their their anniversary with their their wife. I mean, those things really resonated. And many of them, I think, have become amazing. I see Amer- amazing parents and the extent their marriage held up, uh, amazing spouses uh, afterwards. But the actual crime themselves, um, it was an intellectual, it's almost like a discussion with them. And much of my time was not ta- discussing their case, but was actually discussing, I would read, bo- discuss books with them, the kinds of things I'm doing in class. And to see that it was much more of like an intellectual exercise to identify why this was a bad thing. Interesting. Or a, a, a wrong thing. And, and that's why I ultimately came to, this was, this was a, the challenge with white collar crime of how it just doesn't resonate with us the same as an as an outsider, we, we view it very much like a victim does, uh, mm. that, you know, this is outrageous. Clearly, a smart person should identify this. Yeah. Um, but the trick is, is that, I mean, we believe that we will stop if, if we know the difference between right and wrong. But I'll say we, we all do things that we know are wrong uh, to the extent we, we all speed a little bit if we're driving on right. a highway. Right. And we say, well, we're just keeping up with traffic. We know you can go 70 in a 65. That's fine. Everyone does that. Um, it, but we know it's wrong. Um, and, and so knowing the difference between right and wrong is not sufficient. What we really need is that gut feeling that what we're doing is harmful. Uh, and again, this is why, you know, we're not going to go out and stab someone even if there was no law against it. Right. It feels harmful. The trick is that in white-collar crime, and, and as I saw these executives, they don't feel it's harmful. As a result, they never got that, that kind of flashing stop sign. Um, but it, it made me think about a lot about my behavior, uh, I think, a little bit differently and how – I, like most people, you know, justify, you know, little, little, little kind of deviance here and there, going a little bit fast here, uh, that it just, why do I think that's okay, but, but not something else? Do we, um, is, is there any way, I guess, to, to change that, do you sense, to train it differently? I mean, I guess it is. It's different if I pull a knife and I threaten physical harm on you versus, you know, access your funds and and take your funds that's financial harm it could be physical harm as well but it's just there's yeah there's just not this edge to it right i mean i think that one of the things that was interesting that i saw was that everyone thinks that they're kind of they're the good guy right um, i mean when i talk to the people that do insider trading they say yeah i know some you know a, a little bit money was but at least i was trying to build a firm it's those guys that did financial fraud that are the real villains and then you talk to people who did financial fraud, and they're like, but I was trying to build a firm, and yeah, I turned left instead of right. It's the people that did Ponzi schemes that are right. the real problem, because they didn't even want to build a firm. And then you talk to the Ponzi schemers, and they say, yeah, fine, maybe a billion dollars is lost, but that's nothing compared to the CEOs of the financial firms during the financial crisis that lost you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and then aren't even in prison. And so it's always everyone, no matter who they are in my book, they can see themselves as not as the, the, the real, real bad guy. And I think that's the challenge. Actually, I gave 
I've been doing a survey with, with uh, students from some of the top management programs, uh, alumni. And one of the questions which, which I've asked is, you know, do you see yourself as an honest person in some of these surveys? Hmm. And, and not surprisingly, you know, you see 98, 99% yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, it actually always amazes me that there's always 1% that say no to nope. that question. But <laughs> I'm a scoundrel. 90, 90, and then I, later on in the survey, I ask a question. In the past six months, have would someone in your firm describe you have, have, having done something that would be considered dishonest or, or unethical? Now, 99% of people say they're honest people, so you would say, well, you know, one or two percent would answer. Turns out, I find around 20, 20 plus percent of people, huh. 20, 21 percent, say yes, I've done something dishonest in the past six months. Wow. And, and, the, and these, are, these are not criminals. These no. are our students coming out of management programs. And that's exactly, I think, the challenge we face going to your question of how do we stop this is we, we are all able to maintain this view that on one hand, we're honest and, and you know, thoughtful and respectful individuals. Well, simultaneously, doing things that are sometimes a little, a little rough on the edges. And we, well, ultimately what we need to do is, is, is basically reconcile these two things. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, and a- again, um, I, I wonder, as, as you sit with Bernie Madoff, does he, does, what's his stance on what he did? Is, is he very similar to what you're talking about? He, he just doesn't quite feel the remorse he may need to? Yeah, I mean, Bernie's a little bit different than really any any other person I spoke with in that he actually did know his his victims. I mean, these were family, these mm. were friends, these were members of the kind of his religious community. They were in the Jewish community, um, so he's a little bit different in that regard. But but in every case, you know, he rationalizes his, his behavior um, and and the harm to his victims. So, for example, the money that was lost from the charities. I mean. One of the things that people most often point out is being like, how could he have done that yeah. in these charities? Um, he looks at the only reason the monies had, uh, charities had any money in the first place is because they were created from these false gains earlier in time. Hmm. So in some sense, he gave them a fake $100 and then took that fake $100 back. So it was the charity never really existed in the first place. Interesting. And so he doesn't feel like he actually hurt the charity. It just he kind of lived a fake life and then he took it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, strictly speaking, in some instances, that's technically true, but that's a real, I'll say, that's a, that's a, that's a bitter pill to be taking, being like, you know, you can, it, it's deception. It's it is. Deepest, deepest well, it's Ponzi struggle. scheme by definition, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's when, you, when you look at this too, do you see as a business professor, do we, do we teach, are we not teaching enough um, about ethics? and maybe too much about competition? I actually think we, we make ethics too easy, is what I will oh, say, do we? Okay. in the classroom. And that, you know, most of the time, you know, whether it's corporate training uh, or, or in a business school classroom, what generally happens is you, you bring people a, a case uh, of some, quote, challenging situation, and you say, we're going to discuss this for an hour, and we're going to figure out how we ought to resolve this. But simply by giving people in a training exercise, in a corporate training exercise, the case that they need to discuss, you've already vastly simplified the ethical decision, uh, difficulty of the ethical decision, because you've already told them what the trade-off is and what the ethical dilemma is. In a lot of instances, you know, let's go back to Raja Gupta. The trouble for him is if we were to pull out and say, should you call a hedge fund 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting <laughs> and divulge what you learned? 
let's have an hour-long discussion around this. Uh, let's just say that wouldn't be a particularly interesting discussion right, to have. Right. That would be resolved in eight seconds. And he would presumably identify that in eight seconds as being a clearly the wrong thing to do. But in many instances, people just don't see what they're doing is harmful. They don't see the consequences genuinely at the time. Yeah. And so what we need to do is, at least as I see, stop spending time just kind of pontificating and think, doing these exercises, which, if anything, can lead to false confidence that we're actually better at solving yeah. these ethical dilemmas. I wouldn't have called. Really <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, we all, we all successfully pass it. You leave the class or the training exercise, and you say, great, I, I, can, I can resolve any of these things when I, when I run into them. What we need to do is basically accept, maybe with a little bit more humility, that when we're actually placed in these compromised positions, like many of these smart, smart executives were, that we might not always do the right thing. That right. pressure, norms, uh, a lot of incentives can drive us to do things that we would never, ever think when we're sitting in the comfort of our, our room right now that we would ever do. Boy, it seems so like that we, would be so valuable. And let's start designing systems that help intercede earlier and, and kind of create that red light even when we might not seat ourselves when we're actually at the time making these decisions. Because there are triggers, and every human has triggers and, you know, insecurities and fears. And, boy, if you could help uh, a, a program in a program, a uh, an MBA program, a student to identify what their triggers are. I mean, it might not be financial triggers that worry them. It might be you know, looking good with others. It might be their in other insecurities, other fears they have. So, I mean, I guess awareness could be a huge uh, lesson to teach. What else yeah. What else could we be just teaching our kids? And how, how should we take this as a teaching tool for our own families, for our own, you know, family members that are in business or for any of us that think that we're above crime? I think uh, how how easily influenced we are actually by by the surrounding norms. I mean, it's something you know we teach we teach you know our, our kids. You know, you're going to be influenced by who you hang around with on the playground. Right. But it, what's funny is as we get kind of older and older, we we generally don't take that advice quite as seriously. Uh, I mean, the number of people that you know smart smart students that I, I've had that that I see that believe that they can enter a firm that has maybe a, a let's just say a a pretty aggressive or maybe even a, a slightly compromised culture. But what you think is that I'm, a, I'm an ethical person. I'm a better person than that. So if anything, I will help change that. It won't change me. Yeah. And this is what we naturally do. And, or, we'll, or even if we, we seek it's a little dodgy and this is not what I want to be a part of, I'll leave. But the trick is, is that more often than not, Two things are going to happen. First, you're probably going to become that culture. Right. Uh, it, it, so, and you're not even going to identify it when you are compromised. But even if you're a, able to identify and say, wow, this is, I, I'm in way too deep, the problem is then you're in the situation of quitting, whistleblowing. It, there's only bad outcomes for you in that case. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I wish we would all take kind of the advice that, you know, we give our, our sons and daughters on the playground and, and actually figure out how to incorporate that more into how we all make our, our career decisions. It's so good. Eugene F. Soltis, thank you so much for your insight, your great work. Again, remember, Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, author of the book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal. Powerful, uh, powerful insight, I think, for all of us. You are not above uh, crime. You're not. And it's the second you think you are, you are setting yourself up. We all will fall uh, prey to just those 
trends, those beliefs, those assumptions, those fears, those insecurities. we got to stay on our toes. And we also can't just allow a white-collar criminal to seem less significant of a criminal than, um, than every other crime going on out there on the streets. Great insight. We'll take a break, friends. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, we were talking white-collar crime, but a bigger crime may be letting Elmo go. Could be. Our cute little red friend. Is it true that they he had an exit interview? It was a mock exit interview. Oh. The idea being if the, the proposed budget goes through okay. and if PBS takes a bunch of cuts... What happens to Elmo? All right. Now I thought they're I thought they were only showing new content on HBO. Well, the, the, as the article points out, that this is attached to uh, Sesame Street has an HBO deal also, so they're probably in better financial situations. But uh, but what about the other Muppets? Well, well, it's the other Muppets, but also the availability of the show because many rural areas their PBS affiliates would go away because of hmm. funding. And so kids wouldn't be able to see right. this educational programming. Oh. And so there's that involved, too. So it's kind of a, a fun parody they put together for, I think the Huffington Post put it together. But All it's right. quite funny. Go ahead. Hey, what's going on? Oh, thanks for coming in, Elmo. Um, we have something very important to discuss. Elmo happy to help. Elmo loves to help. Elmo, uh, it does mean no great joy to inform you that due to recent cuts in government funding to PBS, you are no longer employed by Sesame Street Workshop. Huh? What? Elmo, you're being laid off. Just like that? Elmo's been working at Sesame Street for 32 years! Elmo, Elmo... Y- yes, Elmo well, doesn't... Elmo, the Trump administration is getting all arts and education funding from the new congressional budget. But Elmo's rent just went up! Elmo, you're gonna land on your feet, don't Uh, worry. But Elmo hasn't been unemployed since the 80s! What's going to happen to Elmo's insurance? Elmo has pre-existing condition! Well, you should apply for government health care. Well, you can. (laughs) That's being gutted, too. Uh, Where is Elmo supposed to go? Elmo's only real talent is being Elmo! Well, you could take pictures with tourists in Times Square for tips. Huh? <laughs> Are there other monsters fired too? Cookie Monster? Tally Monster? Yes, we let Tally and Cookie go this morning. But what about the kids? They have YouTube, Elmo. YouTube. Okay, Elmo will go bye-bye now. His oh. disdain for YouTube. That's sad. Wow. Elmo is be looking for Elmo and Cookie Monster at a Walmart greeter position yeah. near you. I'm not sure what a Muppet is to do in a, this kind of economy. Soon to be years. Elmo the Hobo. <laughs> That'll be a movie. <laughs> Elmo the Hobo. But it does kind of shine a light on the reality when he said, what about the kids? Like, what about all these kids that don't necessarily have Wi-Fi access to watch YouTube and all the wonderful joys of that and instead had PBS. 
<sighs> my, we, I showed this to my kid last night. He's like, where's Elmo going? And like tears. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold oh, no, on, no, hold no, on. no, 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 no. <laughs> this is just, we'll have HBO, son. Dad will take care of you. Oh, it's sad, you know. You, these decisions hurt people. Yeah. They hurt people. Well, okay. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 